it's another episode of the Gaming Memories Podcast. The one true video game podcast where I, Cade, call the blessed prophets of the gaming gods, even Miyamoto, the father, Kojima, the son, and Comet, the Holy Ghost, anointed me the one true prophet, the only person whose opinion on gaming subjects and, and stuff matters. And disregard the fact that I can't speak worth shit because I'm high. That's right. I'm celebrating. Why? Because I just finished editing this goddamn episode. Woo! It's a banger. The reason why I'm so stoked, I have been slowly chunking away editing this podcast, specifically this episode, 30 minutes a morning for, I don't know, like a month. Why? Because I knew I needed to edit this episode myself personally because it's one that I'm amped. Can you feel the spirit, brothers and sisters? Why am I so amped? Because today's episode is a little bit different. I am not interviewing someone about their favorite gaming memories growing up. (gasps) Oh my goodness, he's not doing what the gods commanded him. Bitch, prophets don't do what they say they're going to do. It's the way it works. We're hypocrites. Now give me your money, give me your wife. This is how the shit works. God damn it, judging me. Ah, You can't judge me. I am holier than thou. That's the sound. That's the sound of enjoyment. Anyway, today, special, special guests. Two guests, to be in fact. Chris Copeland from the Fantastic Retro Hangover podcast and Bill Barber from the Gaming and Collecting podcast. Gaming and Collecting? Jesus, Lord Almighty. Gaming and Collecting is what I meant to say. They both have respective podcasts on their own. Those links will be in the podcast description. And let's be real. Both their podcasts are better than mine. More consistent. Better production quality. But the missing one thing. Me, motherfuckers! Ha <laughs> Irreplaceable. I'm irreplaceable. Actually, you are too. We're all so special. Let's give ourselves pets on the back. Anyway, check their podcasts out. They're awesome. They've both been previous guests, but I've had private conversations with both of them many a times and have been blown away at how knowledgeable they both are in terms of just gaming history, uh, obscure facts, things about consoles and games that I had no idea about, and I had a little devious plan. What if I get these two together? They had an, I think they were aware of each other, but I don't know if they've ever had a conversation before this recording. If I can get them together and get the ball rolling, I think these two beautiful assholes will just start spewing the gaming gospel in all its glory. And uh, I was fucking right. That's why I'm a prophet, bitches, because I was right and I knew it was going to happen. I got these two assholes together. They started rolling and man, they just dumped the info. The reason I had to edit it myself, there was so much info and so dense and we were all having such a good time. We talked over each other a lot and I had to unravel some of those sections where it was just everybody rambling. And the problem is we'd all be saying shit at the same time and all the shit was good. So I went through really meticulously and edited this podcast so that the information was all clear and concise. It's not always going to sound natural, and that's the point for this particular episode. For me, if I was listening to this episode, what's most interesting is all the information that is conveyed in such a short amount of time. I whittled this thing down from like three and a half hours to shit, I don't even know how long it is, like an hour 30? 
ish. I think it's going to end up being. It's just dense gaming goodness. And a lot of my previous episodes will go off the rails. I'll talk about shit. This is not one of those episodes. If you've ever complained, like many of you have, rightfully so, that sometimes we spend five minutes talking about video games. The rest of the time I'm talking about aliens, whatever the fuck. God, I love saying that word. It's so... It's so gross. It's such a gross word when I listen to it, but it feels so good coming off the lips. Anyway, this episode is not one of those episodes. It is gaming goodness start to finish. Bada bing, bada boom. Chris from Retro Hangover. Bill from Gaming and Collecting Podcast. Check them out. I'm not even going to say anything else because let's just get right to it, baby. Here it comes. I say these things in the name of Miyamoto, the father, Kojima, the son, and Carmack, the Holy Ghost. Amen. And enjoy the motherfucking show. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, All right. So this podcast is 100% selfish for me, like all my podcasts are. Uh, I brought on Chris Copeland. Is that how you say your last name? Yeah, Copeland. From Retro Hangover, also known as Zodiac, spelled with an X because he's edgy. I'm King Edgelord. Thank you. (laughs) And then Will or Bill, he goes by both from the Barbahoo Games. They both have their own respective podcasts, which I'm sure everyone's heard. They've both been on the podcast before. I wanted to say I thought about trying to schedule both your co-hosts to coming out but that'd be way too many people and scheduling error so yeah and alex's schedule is like yeah so no disrespect same with shane yeah no disrespect to shane and his beautiful long hair and his sultry voice or no disrespect to alex and her love for anime and animal crossing but you can (laughs) you can learn more about them in other episodes but chris and will i wouldn't say i'm like a hardcore Gamer, because I've met people like you guys that know way more. But in my group of friends and in my social circles, I'm generally known as the dude who knows a bunch of random shit about video games that doesn't matter. I'm nothing. The rabbit hole goes deep. And you two, out of all the people that I've interviewed on the podcast so far, know a lot about video games. And I'm constantly impressed, just like off the cuff, the shit you guys say every time I talk to you. I just recently had a podcast with Will and his sister that hasn't come out yet. And the same thing, you brought up, uh, what was that? Sega. Dreamcast. Oh, Ill Bleed. Ill bleed. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Like, I, I couldn't believe that wasn't anyway. So, I'm constantly impressed by the stuff that you guys know. And I wanted you to come on and one, meet each other because I think you'd have great chemistry. And two, to kind of walk through and data dump on me. And then, by virtue, the listening audience, just cool, obscure gaming shit that people probably don't know. And I know that you guys, without preparation, can do that. I hope I don't embarrass myself too much. I think Bill's going to be a lot better. I hope than, you do. Uh, than me. Not, yeah, I know you get a lot of joy out of me embarrassing myself because I love to embarrass your ass too. So I don't know though, because I know a lot of stuff, but I'm also, I was born like in the fifth generation of gaming. So like, I only have like secondhand knowledge and everything beforehand. I didn't actually grow up with it. And speaking of generations, so I just learned my experience starts with the NES, which apparently, according to Wikipedia, is considered the third generation yes. yep. of video game consoles. So let's start with, let me pull this back up. I thought I had that tab up. Okay, so the first generation, now they're saying, I thought Pong was like the OG video game, but if you want to be technical... And if we're going to count, like, the old mainframe computer games from way back in the day, 
I think the first official video game is either Tennis for Two or Space War. I think it's officially Tennis for Two. But I mean, it's it it stories don't they all are all over the place. All from I think MIT, if I'm correct. Yeah, they were all built on uh, those uh, big mainframe computers back in the day, and they were basically just the scientists like goofing off, uh, like off hours. Series of tubes. Literally. I brought up tennis for two with Patrick Kiki Jr. as a quiz because I asked him what was the first sports game because we were talking about sports. Because technically, tennis for two is also a sports game. It's tennis. Yes. It's also the first video game, apparently. And the funny part is both of those games were ripped off by uh, later big competitors. Mm -hmm. So the first one on here is the Magnavox Odyssey. I literally don't know anything about that. So technically, I believe before the Odyssey was actually uh, Nolan Bushnell's computer space, which was like one of the first arcade machines. See, I don't even know that much about it. I just know like around that time with Odyssey, you had a lot of the, the Pong TV home connectors. Nintendo had one of those, too. So that was like the first generation of games on top of the Magnavox Odyssey. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I know what came first chronologically, but I do know that a lot of companies, they came out with game systems that all they do would play Pong. And essentially, that's all that the Magnavox Odyssey is, too. So, the reason why I say uh, Computer Space is because Computer Space was a total ripoff of uh, Space War. Oh, that makes sense. By uh, Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari. And it bombed in the arcades, A, because the arcade cabinets looked like these weird, like, psychedelic, like, they were, like, green and, like, purple and, like, were, like, these weird, like, they looked like lava lamps, kind of, in, like, shape. The actual cabinet was shaped like a lava lamp? Yeah, it was, like, this, like, well, it was like this fiberglass weird shape that looks like the stuff inside, like a lot of lamp. It's if you look it up, it, it's it's kind of it's bizarre looking. I've never seen one in real life, but um, that was back in the day of vector graphics too. You didn't really have CRTs. If you look, remember the first Asteroids game, which is probably what a lot of people remember when they think early arcades. That's all vector graphics. And I think the reason why Computer Space failed was because it was too complicated. Because it was like a four button, you had to like move the ship around in space and. It was too much for the general public to really, like, get into, I guess you could say. And then that's where Ralph Baer comes along with uh, the Magnavox Odyssey, which is, I believe, officially the first video game console. And you're saying it only played Pong? There was no games for it? How they swapped games, because you didn't have interchangeable cartridges until the Fairchild uh, Channel F. And that was the first console to have interchangeable cartridges. So before that, you had the Magnavox Odyssey, and essentially the way that you changed games, it was had multiple overlays and different selections on the console itself. From what I remember, I know that it had different overlays, and you put the overlays on your TV screen, and you play that way. I got to use an Odyssey at a convention once, because they had one set up, and the way it worked, like, it was weird. Like, you had all the little chipboard things that were like the semi quote unquote cartridges and uh, you'd basically plug them in and it would just change the coding in the system, I guess, but you still needed to put the overlay on the screen to kind of like get the actual graphical effect. Cause like, I think the most famous one is chip one, which is basically a very simplistic version of Pong. Like it didn't keep score and it like was kind of just kind of sloppy and all over the place. And I think the other ones kind of, they would get rid of the Pong line. They changed like, how many paddles were on the screen just for the sake of whatever the weird overlay game was kind of like hockey or like soccer and i mean they're essentially all the same game it's just i know one was like literally simon says (laughs) like uh oh wow there was a name the states game (laughs) like it was oh there was also video poker that was a funny one was that on the odyssey there was it was um 
you'd put like the board up on the thing and you kind of have to like flail the Odyssey and it would either land on like red or black and you'd have to like, but it never did because it was so simplistic for the time. Oh, wow. I, I've never actually played one or seen one, so I'm envious. I've just only heard stories. It was at a convention and there was like literally no line for it. Like, cause they, it, the, the convention was like retro themed. So it had all the old consoles and everyone was like lining up. Everyone wanted to play obviously the NES and like Sega stuff. Mm. And I, I'm like over here, I'm like, there's an odyssey right there, guys. Like, pay attention. So I went and tried it out. And it was, I mean, nowadays it's the most like simple thing you'll ever experience, but it, it was cool. What was the controller like? Because I know the Odyssey 2, like the controller for the Odyssey 2 is shit. At least the one I played, just because maybe it was just worn down. But um, like, was the controller attached to the system or it was like hardwired in like you saw in a lot of early consoles? Hardwired similar to like how like the, the Famicom is in uh, Japan. And right. uh, the controllers are weird because they're like these boxes that have two knobs. No, there's three knobs on the side. One has two knobs on one side. The other has a knob on the other side. And it's like up and down, left and right, and then this weird third knob, which could change the direction of the ball in Pong for some reason. I It's like the debug mode. Yeah. And then it was a reset button on the top. There, there was like no comfortable way to hold the thing. I think it was designed to have on a flat surface, but even that's not comfortable. I'm thinking it looks like it has like this, this big like structure in the center of it, and then it like had flat things on the side. And then it came out. Am I thinking the same thing? I sent a YouTube link with a set at a time. It's in the chat, bottom right-hand corner. Uh, It should start right at a frame that shows two controllers, the Odyssey. And apparently they had like a rifle attachment. Yeah, the rifle, which was a straight up like It looks like a full-on rifle, apparently. (laughs) It it, it was also the most like basic light gun ever because you could literally. He had the light gun too when I tried it out. And like I just to see, I pointed the light gun at one of the ceiling lights, and it worked. Okay, now I'm seeing. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at pictures of this thing now. Yeah, great, great pod here. Me surfing the internet and looking at shit. Um, yeah, this thing looks old as fuck. <laughs> and it was weird because it had this really specific like input that you needed like a very specific box to plug into, which had the friggin' hook things on the end that you'd have to plug into like screw into the TV. And it was like, one of the reasons the Magnavox failed was because when they advertised it on TV, they only ever showed off like it using Magnavox TVs. So a lot of people thought you needed to own a Magnavox TV to actually play the Magnavox Odyssey. Yeah, there's no precedent on consoles at all. Well, probably explain why a lot of these Pong machines were as successful as they were. It's because it's Pong. You know, people, it has name familiarity. And the other thing is, like, it doesn't have controllers or knobs. Like, I think everything was pretty much hard-built into these Pong clones for the most part. So you'd have two people on either side of the machine that would hook up, like, a plug-and-play to your TV directly. Yeah, and most of them were battery-operated, but you could buy external AC adapters to, like, use them. And I remember specifically, like, there's so many different Pong consoles out there. Like, the most famous is obviously Atari's home console which was based off their arcade cabinet which i have seen and i've seen an uh an, an official like old pong arcade machine once at a convention as well and it literally just looks like a hunk of wood i mean the first generation was it was nothing spectacular it was that's all it was it was the magnifox odyssey and pong clones and that's really it but i didn't realize that there was like a generation of clones where people just that makes sense because this if it's a brand new industry, there's not going to be like licensing and IP and all that st- structure hadn't been filled out. So you, I, I guess the question is legally, did nobody own Pong? Uh, yeah, I, I think the name Pong itself 
was trademarked, but the actual concept, I mean. I guess it's true. You can make a fighting, yeah. No one was really testing it yet. That would come later. Like, especially if when we get into talking about the Odyssey 2 and KC Munchkin and KC Munchkin versus Pac-Man. And then I think it changed a bit later with Nintendo. I forgot the case that really said that you can't, like, an idea isn't necessarily, uh, like, IP infringement. But for a while it was, but that wasn't established until you got to the Magnavox Odyssey 2 era with Casey Munchkin. Before moving away from the Odyssey, there's actually one huge, like, irony in the background. The creator of the Odyssey, Ralph Baer, Nolan Bushnell uh, literally stole his idea to make Pong. Ralph Baer later got his, like, Just Desserts later on, because he later went on to make uh, Simon, a little toy game where, like, you know, the lights uh, shine up and you have to match the patterns. Oh, Simon Says? Yeah, but it was, like, a little, like, arc- little electronic game that you could buy for, like, kids, and you'd, like, press the buttons, it would make the music noises, and you'd have to, like, match the pattern. Yeah, it'd be different colors, red, blue, green, and yellow, and then, uh, like, it would light up the lights in the pattern, you had to repeat the pattern. The biggest irony there is... Ralph Bear ripped that off of something Atari created and made it better. And uh, Atari then tried to like take their original, I, I forget what Atari's version was called, and then they tried to put it out like the same way to cash on it, and everyone just called it a Simon ripoff. So to make sure I understood that, the creator of Pong ripped that idea off from the creator of the Odyssey. Yes, which in itself wasn't an original idea because it was ripped off of Tennis for Two, but... From what I understand, first generation is a bunch of Pong clones, and then the Magnavox Odyssey, which didn't have cartridges, but had sort of a precursor to cartridges, sounds like. The idea was there, but they really weren't any... All the games were technically the system. It was just slightly... All the cards did was change the way the system was programmed. It wasn't like completely different programs that were put in there. and like They weren't completely different games. It was just altering... Slightly uh, altering the code so you'd have different video output. Sweet. All right. So second generation. Oh, by the way, for those listening, first generation, according to Wikipedia, is considered 1972 to 1980. So that's an eight-year span. All we had from what it sounds like is Pong for eight years. Essentially. Wikipedia is saying second generation is from 76 all the way to 92. Yes, and that is strictly only because the Atari 2600 wouldn't die. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because you had the 7800 which played 2600 games, and technically it was supported, and then just Atari died. All right, well, the uh, the 2600 Junior was still being made even then, too. That's true. Now, I did hear about the Fairchild Channel F from a, Net- a Netflix documentary, which was this black dude who was a genius that didn't get credit. It's a cool console. Like, if you've ever, like, actually used one, I... The controller is really interesting. Uh, I think there's a YouTuber named Scott the Waz. He literally referred to it as a Snickers bar because that's <laughs> kind of what it is. It's like you're holding like a like it's like a rod you hold in your hand and it's got like a joystick on the top that you can pull in and out like shift side to side and then twist and that's kind of how all the inputs work. The game I'm most familiar with on it is the hockey game because it's like one of the most intense pong games you'll ever play was could you move anywhere on the board but you also had um if you twisted the uh the controller you could change the angle of your uh paddle and you had a goalie that you moved back and forth by also like shifting around the controller it was impressive for the time honestly from what i remember in this documentary just the idea of cartridges and separate games that really changed everything when I was watching the documentary, the thought I had was like, oh, we take that for granted. And you kind of didn't, I didn't realize that that required someone thinking through how this was all going to work. 
instead of it being built into the machine, we're going to actually create this modular idea where you can swap games in and out. It looks like it belongs in a Blade Runner car. I think it looks pretty cool. It looks like an 8-track player or a cassette player. Yeah, Exactly what I was thinking. Like a beta machine or something like that. But that makes sense. I mean, at this time, that's when beta betas were coming out. Uh, not betas, I'm sorry, but um, 8-tracks were coming out and becoming more popular. So, I mean, I don't know what Jerry Lawson, he's the person who created the interchangeable cartridges. Maybe he came up with that idea. I would love to look more into it. I'm just not off the top of my head. I can tell you about it. But he came up with the idea for interchangeable cartridges for the Fairchild uh, Channel F. And, of course, like the Fairchild Channel F didn't sell very well. And it was immediately uh, followed by the Atari 2600 or video computer system at the time. And that, it was a huge, 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 massive success. So the reason probably people don't know about Jerry Lawson and the Channel F is just because it was swallowed whole by the monster that was the 2600. There was no escaping it. And it came out less than a year later, if I'm correct. From what I understand, the 2600 was the NES before the NES. It's It broke through to like the complete mainstream. So when people generally think like old video game, you're either going to think the NES or you're going to think the 2600, the wood grain, like switches and the controller, like probably one of the most iconic video game controllers of all time. And why do you think the 2600 did so much better than the Fairchild? I would have to look at the price of release. That could be it. But the other thing is that the Fairchild Channel F didn't have Space Invaders. It didn't have Pong. It didn't have it didn't have Atari games. And it's, and the arcade, it was what people are trying to bring home at the time in the late 70s. They wanted the arcade in their house. We'll probably get into it later, but a lot of people always have to remember, too, with Atari. The original Atari Inc. was technically two divisions. There was the, the actual console like game market, and then there was the arcade division, which was like immensely successful at the time. That makes sense. So really, the arcades had been around, and it was like, we want to bring the arcade home, and the Fairchild doesn't do that. So... Yes. Yeah. That makes I mean, sense. If take like the Fairchild Channel F where you have generically named games still like hockey and whatever they had on that system. They were just like the very generic games. And then you go to the VCS and it has what it was the one with the, the tanks combat combat and Most it's common game. Ever. Yep. <laughs> and that's something you don't generally see you something you wouldn't see on the Channel F or you would see like Space Invaders and think about how much how many quarters were just swallowed up by by space invaders and now you had it at at home like it wasn't a one to one conversion but now if you bought that game for like 20 20 dollars 25 dollars you didn't have to go to the arcade and plunk down like 3 dollars of the quarters every single time you went there you had it at home and you also had um it's comparable like you had like a breakout and you had the the paddle yep. controllers so you could have the paddle experience also on the system and then there was Centipede was also out at that time. Centipede, Millipede, just all the arcade hits. You know, people, the things that people knew, the people associated with the arcades that uh, at the time, Atari was the arcade. Asteroids, Mm -hmm. asteroids, big, big, big hit. Yep. That was on your Atari. You weren't going to get that on the Channel F. The Channel Mm -hmm. F also kind of advertised it like, hey, all these games are in a series. So they only had 10 games. And it was kind of like, okay, you have the complete set. And none of them were like extraordinarily interesting. You know, um, Fairchild wasn't a really big game developer. It was more of a technological developer, which is something that you'll see a lot with, uh, you know, with um, the Intellivision and um, uh, Coleco. Like, mm-hmm. the, they weren't big software developers. Who made the Intellivision? Mattel. What's it? Mattel. 
like they weren't software developers. They weren't making no. arcade games. They Atari were was. Company. Yeah. Which is one of the big reasons you get to, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but you get to the third generation who's coming out on top. Nintendo and Sega. Why? Mm-hmm. They they dominated the arcade space. So here's a really fascinating thing about every generation that I actually kind of put together. The most powerful system of every generation has never won the generation. Interesting. Let me think about that from what I can remember. Super Nintendo. This one, that one is the, is an, there's a big asterisk. And the only reason I say that is because if you want to be technical, the Neo Geo was more powerful. Yeah. If you want to get technical. And uh, yeah. Cause that's technically a gen four console. Yeah. See, Gen Gen Four is the most interesting because that is probably the biggest asterisk because that con- the, the the Neo Geo is a weird console in in its entirety. But I guess we're getting ahead of ourselves a little there. Yeah, it's like a home arcade board. Yes, yeah, it's, it's hard to really call it a console. It's like, oh, you can take the same cartridges in the arcade machine and plug it into your this thing we made and modified it to play under TV. But yeah, we are getting ahead of ourselves. That is a good question though, because I I d- define more powerful. Is for, for as far as the gen, like just raw processing speed, processing power, yeah. graphical capabilities. So the Intellivision I mean, was sixteen bit, for example. Yes, but it did not have like because also you're going to get into the whole what do bits actually do? Do the math, Bill. Do the math. Sixty four bits. Y'all, it hey, it equaled sixty four bits. What is uh, so that's interesting? Of. So the Intellivision I'm looking on here was. Gen 2, but 16-bit was actually Gen 4. So do give us, me and the listeners, kind of, maybe they didn't grow up with bits, but what does a bit mean and what does it imply? And why did we move away from bits as part of Because our- it's mostly marketing. Yeah, like, bits do not mean graphics. That is, like, probably the biggest okay. thing that no one, that, that was probably the biggest misconception of, like, all the error, like, when bits were still a relevant topic. I mean, getting going a little bit ahead, you got to remember, like, the PS2 was only a 64-bit console. I think the Wii is only 30. No, the Wii U is only 32-bit. Keep that, that in mind. That, that surprises me. That's only 32-bit. But, like, for example, like the TurboGrafx-16 isn't a 16-bit system. It's an 8-bit system. But it's way more powerful than the Master System, which is a true 8-bit system. Yes. Because it, it all has to do with the, the extra chips around it. Because... Getting into actual like hardware and like how these systems work is like a whole nother complicated matter in itself. Because when you actually look at the Atari twenty six hundred, it's actually really not that impressive of a system. Oh, it's not in, oh. it's it's not impressive at all. Especially in that generation, it's more powerful than the Fairchild Channel F. I guess it's equal, you could say, to the Magnavox two, the Odyssey two. I think the Odyssey two could display a lot more colors. Like the color spectrum is a lot more variable. Like when you look when you look at like the immediate competition, because um, you know, just going off, I'm probably looking at the same thing. Kate is. It says uh, the Channel F twenty six hundred or VCS, Intellivision, Odyssey two, and ColecoVision. Atari is near the bottom of that. It's it's not it's not as powerful as the Intellivision. I think it has a smaller color palette than the Odyssey Two. I could be wrong there, and it's certainly yeah. not as powerful as the ColecoVision. No, the ColecoVision was by far the most impressive system at at that time. Yeah, it's it's a close call between it and the Intellivision, but the ColecoVision and the SC One Thousand by Sega are essentially the same hardware. Well, yeah, there was the SG One Thousand, then the SG One Thousand Mark II, which was the same thing but slightly better, I guess you could say. And then the Mark III, it, we'll get to uh, next <laughs> next generation. No, the SC One Thousand was the third generation. We'll we'll get to that later because it came out the same day as the Famicom. Yeah, this is true. Actually, yeah, we're we're completely. On that. This is pre Master System Sega consoles. Yeah, there is one. Yes, I did. Well, not... technically two. Oh, Jesus Christ. The rabbit hole goes deep. All right. So second generation, Fairchild F, Atari 2600, which was the Big Bahama Mama, the Mattel 
television. And that, that is interesting. I'm going through this. I think you're right. The most powerful system has never been the best selling system. You are right. I, I can't. I'm going through this Wikipedia article and I don't see where you're wrong. Uh, Gen Gen eight still up for debate, but we'll get that's that. true. Yeah, because I mean, the PS4 is is kind of I mean, I would say the PS4 is more powerful than the Xbox one. But then you also put into like account then there's the PS4 Pro and the Xbox One X and there's that's why I kind of yeah it's it gets it becomes a mess. That's why that one's kind of up still up. Well, that generation's also still not technically over. Yet, and the Switch so. is still part of that generation. Yes, and the Wii U. It's very confusing. The Wii U is the greatest console of all time, right, Chris? Yeah, I, I do believe so. <laughs> but like for example, the Atari Fifty Two Hundred came out in the second generation, which was the, supposed to be the successor to the Twenty Six Hundred. Yes. And they it's botched, just they botched it in every way. <laughs> Other than the hardware itself, they botched everything about it. Okay, because the 7800 is third generation. So in between the 2600 and the 7800, they had this 50 what hundred? 5200. 5200. Explain what was botched about it. The controller. <laughs> that was that was part one, is the controller. But that's controller not- is probably the most well-known. It also has cartridges don't ma- aren't the same, so it wasn't backwards compatible. It, there was an adapter, but that was another thing you had to buy. Yeah, and that's that. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons because around that time, like people had twenty six hundreds. So when Atari came out with a new system, just as as Bill said, people wanted their fifty two hundreds to play twenty six hundred games because people didn't understand the concept of upgrading or backwards compatibility yet. And you saw this when the Super Nintendo came out, and a lot of people were like, "Well, I don't want to buy a system where I can't play my Nintendo games." That was actually a complaint in the mm-hmm. early 90s towards the Super Nintendo that a lot of parents were concerned about. There's a famous clip of like a, a mother at a store being like, nah, we're not going to buy this because this is how they, they just market things to make you buy spend more money or something like that. Exactly. So when the 5200 came out, first of all, it was underwhelming. It wasn't that much better looking than the 2600. Probably costs way more. It was about on par with the maybe like up the lowest end of the Intellivision like stuff. Right. And why would you get a 5200 when you can get an Intellivision? I mean, they both have mm-hmm. shitty controllers. You have this weird dial for the Intellivision. And the ColecoVision had a following as well, even though that also had a shitty controller, because no D-pad was established at this point. But, um... Yes. Atari 2600 games were, at that point, like 15 to $20 a pop. And they, they were still providing essentially the same gameplay experience that you would get from the 5200. So there was really no reason to upgrade. Plus, the 5200 was just this behemoth of a system that it was just gigantic. With one of the most confusing, like, hookups I've ever seen on a console. It's it's awful. Like, at least you can store your controllers inside the, inside the machine. They don't work. <laughs> It also had four controller ports, which was excessive in at the time. Yeah, I mean, it was way ahead of its time in that aspect. It just who had who was making four player games. The most excessive thing about the 5200's controller is it was like the first console to introduce. Actually, did it come? Actually, I'm not sure if it came out before the Intellivision or not. But it was one of the consoles that had the number pad on it, which has always been a it's one of the most confusing aspects of like any controller design out there. Moving on to the third generation, it says Master System, but you're saying there's two previous systems to the Master System. Oh, there's a lot in the third generation prior. Yeah, the third, the third generation is pretty fascinating. Yeah, you have to go into microcomputers with the third generation. You have to start talking Commodore 64 and ZX Spectrum and... Uh... Atari ST. Atari and- ST, yeah. Uh, and as we were mentioning earlier, you had the SG-1000, which came out on the same day that the Famicom did in Japan, which was mm-hmm. like in 1983. So you had, like, the second gener- like the third generation started somewhere around in 1982, right before the gaming crash happened in North America. 
And that's probably the most important year in modern video game history, or just video game history. It's kind of crazy because obviously the NES was the start of the official start of the third generation. It started in 83, but they didn't make it over to America until like 85, because at that point, America was video games are dead. We're done with this. We've moved on. And they were desperate to like get into the uh, gaming market. So they actually approached Atari to do a partnership. And Atari turned them down and said, this will never, this will never succeed. Well, they, because they're also working on the 7800. The 7800 was supposed to come out in 83 or 84. Yeah, and it got shelved for um, right. a number of years. Because this was after the Atari, the, the Atari split happened. And the market crash. Yes, because Atari Inc. went bankrupt, and it was split between two companies. Uh, Jack Trammell bought Atari Corp., which was the computer and like console division. And Jack, Jack Trammell was the founder of Commodore after he had been ousted from Commodore. Then he made Chuck E. Cheese. No, no, that was Newland Bushnell. Oh, I'm sorry. I, got him. I thought he made Chuck E. I no, get no, him confused. It's okay. But um, <laughs> then the other half of Atari Games, well, of Atari Inc., was Atari Games, which was the arcade division. And they are most famously known during this generation as Tengen, because they could not legally use the Atari name because Atari Corpse had the publishing rights to it. It was a bunch of legal mumbo-jumbo. Give people a, like a Reader's Digest quick course on the what the crash is, the great video game crash, so they have a reference point. Sure. So in, in 1983, and, and the reason I have to say a lot of things I say because it bleeds into what Nintendo did in North America, the gaming market crashed in North America. And it's very important to stress North America because yes. in Europe and Japan, it didn't crash. I mean, no. it, it just wasn't as big as it was in North America. So you will you will hear Brits say that, you know, Nintendo... They, they get mad at people saying that Nintendo saved the video game market. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, we were always healthy over here. Yes, they're, they're correct in a Eurocentral part of, you know, in a Eurocentral way. But the world revolves around America. We know this. Essentially, it does, <laughs> because it is. No, I mean, I'm, you're, you're right, because at the time it was the largest market in the world. So if you could sell in North America, if you were successful in North America, you were going to be successful overall. This is why no one remembers the master system. Even mm-hmm. though the Master System outsold the NES in Europe. It's yeah, Europe, Sega was king in Europe for, whatever for a long reason. time. And, and uh, Brazil for some reason. <laughs> That's because no one else wanted to even try Brazil, and Tech Toy came in and they did amazing things. Well, I, I believe it has something to do with Brazil has a ridiculously high importing rate. Yes. So their taxes, um, so like their import tax, that's what it is. It's the tax they slap on it. So the reason that the Master System became so popular in Brazil was because there's a company called Tectoy, which is native to Brazil, and they actually produced the Master Systems in Brazil. So they avoided that tax, whereas no other company was doing that. Still still running strong to this day, too, which is insane. They've they've slowed down quite a bit. Mm-hmm. It's not as I think they've discontinued it to a point. It's it's very strange. It's like it's all digital console now, like plug and place. That's yeah. their master systems. But um going back to the market crash in nineteen eighty three in North America, essentially what had happened is that Atari had no quality control. Yes. So third parties were just making games and they were just releasing them for the Atari and they cost just as much as quality games. Um, a lot of people like to point to E.T. and Pac-Man. No, that, that's one of the biggest misconceptions. Yeah, it's, it was only part of the problem. It was certainly part of the problem, but not the biggest part because, you know, Atari's making more cartridges than consoles were even available was, for both of these games. That was like the key thing right there. Right. So you, these games are essentially worthless, but that that wasn't the biggest problem part it's just that there is no quality control people have completely lost faith in the market 
itself. They didn't know whether or not these games were good before they bought them because there was no gaming press. There was no there was no review core at the time. Wait, wait, let me back up. So even though the 2600 was huge, there there wasn't like a, a supportive gaming press economy built around despite it being so popular. Well, it was for kids. Everything was for kids. The the arcades were for the like seedy adults. They weren't even like for responsible adults. <laughs> that, That's I mean, true. Like, yeah, that makes sense. Part, yeah. That's where you told, like, if you if you were a 13 year old, you went to the arcade, you were a delinquent, you know, mm-hmm. that's where people got to knife fights and, and did drugs. It was at the arcades. So when they brought them home, this was something that the parents gave their kids. Parents weren't really playing Atari. So no one had really played games long enough to where probably a respectable journalist would say that they were a games journalist or games reviewer. Yeah. I mean, that that just wasn't a thing. And if it was happening, it was really snitch and really obscure. Like, you would have to get it at your local print. And there's no internet. And then how would you distribute that out? Exactly. Also, like, when you bought a game, you had no real way of telling what said game was going to look like. Because game box art back in the day was, uh, was, yeah, take a shot, see how it goes. But that's how they had to market it, too, is that the box art had to sell the game. Because you didn't have gaming magazines. You didn't have publications that you could run ads in, really, that uh, you do today. Or at least people with this, this, this hobby and this interest. So people got a lot of bad games. They got tired of shelling out their hard-earned money. And I say $20, $25 like it's nothing that is today. But back then, it was like 70 bucks. Yeah. yeah. I think the key start was when um, the Activision split, where um, all the former Atari um, employees were tired of not getting the recognition that they uh, they wanted for the games they were creating. So they went off and formed Activision, which was like pretty much the first third-party company when you really break it down. And then that basically started a trend of everybody who could make Atari 2600 games. Yeah, because Atari couldn't stop that. Them. Oh yeah, I mean you could play Atari twenty six hundred games on the ColecoVision. Uh, module thirty two, I think. Something Some, like that. Yeah, or module it, one, module one, or module two. I don't know. I think it was module one because I think module two was the steering wheel. But there was very little copyright protection. Uh, the courts didn't know what to make of electronics. They it was a newfound idea. So in terms of IP protection, in terms of copyright protection, the courts were just, they were slow to really pick up on it. And this is what I was talking about earlier with like KC Munchkin was discontinued for the Magnavots Odyssey 2. They were trying to make it their premier top game, their Pac-Man, like their Pac-In-Box, their mascot, so to speak, for the uh, Odyssey 2. And then Atari sued them saying, or or it wasn't Namco, I think it was Atari. Which is hilarious because it was Namco's game to begin with. Exactly. But I think they purchased the rights for an American distribution. Yeah. And they sued them and they had to have that game discontinued. And it was a really good game. Yeah, it was. It's actually one of the few reasons to even play it uh, on Odyssey 2. Yeah. And then you had the 5200, which launched, and it was awful. And so people started lacking faith in Atari. Uh, They just wanted to hang on to their old Ataris, but they were flooded with just a slew of bad games. And from what I understand, too, in 1983, after the crash, like, if you were a gamer, it was a great time to be a gamer because... You want to talk about bargain bins. Oh, you, you could pick up any game you wanted for like three, three bucks if, if less brand new because there's just so many of them and they, they needed to liquidate it. Another key element from this era before we actually get to Gen 3, because it's very important, is the uh, the Donkey Kong lawsuit. So ColecoVision, actually, their pack in game for the system was Donkey Kong. When they got the rights to do their port of Donkey Kong. Universal ended up suing them essentially for copyright infringement over King Kong because they had just put out the uh, one of their King Kong remakes at that point. And little did Nintendo know, uh, Universal did um, like kind of a back back end deal with Coleco, and Coleco like all went in for it. They were like going to give and pay the money to make them go away. And Nintendo was like, 
no, you can't do this. So they <laughs> got together a um, legal team, and this was basically the start of Nintendo's real, like, gaining a foothold in the industry. Because at this point, they were only really known for Donkey Kong. They, like, they had a few Japanese things um, that hadn't made it over to America yet. This was really their first breaking over into the American soil, especially because Donkey Kong was such a hit for them. And it kickstarted, like, the career of Shigeru Miyamoto. So they ended up going to court, like starting this whole lawsuit. And throughout the whole thing, they actually discovered that Universal had filed a similar lawsuit proving that King Kong was actually public domain just so they could get the rights, basically. And they were being massive hypocrites. And the court threw it out and Nintendo basically won. And the rest is history when you really think about it. The name of their lawyer is Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby. Future reasons. Wasn't he like some intelligence guy or the, he's JFK guy involved with JFK, right? No, no, no. That's, that's a, some other Kirby. Actually, I think you're thinking of Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby. Damn it. Completely. I was so excited. Like what? What? Not only did he defend Nintendo, he killed Lee Harvey Oswald too. Supposedly. We'll never. He acted acted alone. Government. Listen to me. I believe the the story all the way through. He was a, he was a sole actor. Don't listen to us. This is how we put our conspiracy theories into our gaming podcast, so we can just subvert everyone's expectations and plant IDs and seeds on, on Cade's show. So I, I think I followed that whole thing. So there was a King Kong game that I'm assuming was similar to Donkey Kong? No, no, no. They, they were just suing because Donkey Kong was similar to King Kong. Oh, just as in the name. Oh, okay. But they were also arguing, they had previously argued that King Kong was public domain so they could make King Kong. Yeah, so they could get the rights to do the remake that they had previously done. Okay. Yeah, that is bullshit. I didn't realize Nintendo, did they put out any other games besides Donkey Kong before the NES? Radar Scope, and it was a flop. Popeye. Popeye 2. Ah, okay. Their first major one was Radar Scope, which was a, a massive flop because it was just another space, like a t- Space Invaders kind of game. It wasn't bad, though. No, it was a good game, but it, 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 when it came out, it was kind of like, everybody's doing this. What makes this one special? You also had the Game & Watch series uh, that were coming out around that time. I, I don't know what the date is. I think they predate the Famicom, if I'm, if I'm correct. But um, at least in North America. At, le- as, at least in North America, I think they did, as a concept. But, I mean, you go back to, you, you really look at that time, and then you have the rise of the microcomputers, which we alluded to before, which I really think kicked off the third generation, especially in Europe, when you have the Commodore 64 and ZX Spectrum, uh, among others. And those are considered separate from consoles. They're class. Like, what's the difference between a console and a microcomputer? They're like home computers. They they were just slightly less powerful and more user friendly than like an Apple II. Well, they essentially were Apple IIs. They had their own monitors. They had their own keyboards. Everything. The MSX two that was Japan's big one. MSX, which stands for Microsoft, by the way. Um, yeah, MS stands for Microsoft. They heavily invested in it. That's interesting. If I'm wrong, uh, kill me. But um, don't kill him. Just slap him. <laughs> <laughs> there's another one. I know there's there's a couple. I know the ZX Spectrum. That was the Sinclair, and then you had the Commodore, the Amiga, which was Commodore's second computer. Yes, and a lot of those that was big, big, big in Europe, and uh, just because they were dirt cheap, you could share them, and they were powerful, and you could do more than just game on them. They were your home computer. On oh yeah, they were like all significantly more powerful than the NES. Yep, and th- that's why you also had the Atari ST. So Atari was doing things with microcomputers outside of the console market, and they were finding success in Europe with that. Uh, not so much with the 5200 or 2600 anymore. Now, you still had kind of some hangovers with the 2600, but again, like the market crashed, so they, they were losing money hand over fist. 
So then you go over to Japan and the Atari 2800 is what it was called in Japan. Never really took off. Um, I, I would love I don't know exactly what the gaming market was in Japan. I think it was all arcade related because even though like the market in terms of the consoles was dominated by North American interests. The biggest games on these consoles were Japanese. Space Invaders was made by Taito. Uh, Pac-Man was made by Namco. Galaga, Galaxian, Namco was just a monster at that time. They were killing it. Nintendo with Donkey Kong. I'm not saying there weren't any like American-based stuff, but even then it was third-party like Pitfall with uh, Activision. So like the, the arcade, North American arcade market started seeding ground majorly the Japanese interests around this time. And that's when Japan said, Hey, we, maybe we need to get into this console business. And it just happened to coincide in 1983 when they came out with their consoles in Japan, that it would crash in North America. So that's when you had Sega release the SG 1000, which was essentially a Coleco. They were the same system also had the SG 3000, which was a computer that worked off of SG 1000, uh, hardware. And, it, and then they, they later replaced the SG-1000 with the SG-1000 Mark II, which was just an updated version of the SG-1000. And then you had the Famicom, which was based off of Nintendo's Donkey Kong arcade hardware. Sega's already getting their ass kicked in 1983 in Japan. Uh, not immediately, but almost immediately, because Nintendo, they released their console, which was significantly less powerful than the Famicom the same day as the Famicom. Yes. So they were already getting destroyed. They're lunch eaten right out of the gate. In terms of consoles. Yeah, not in the arcade. Sega was a monster in the arcade back in the day. Congo Bongo, Zaxxon, uh, Monaco GP. I mean, all, a lot of their games on the SG-1000 were all arcade conversions of bigger name games. I mean, they yes. sucked, but they were arcade conversions of big name Sega games. So the probably the most biggest challenge was basically Nintendo getting the Famicom to America. They had to, essentially, because no one would touch it the way it was, they had to uh, market it not as a video game console, but as a toy, which is the main reason why we had the light gun and Rob the Robot, which was pretty much the biggest Trojan horse, like, <laughs> of that, um, of, like, video games. Because if you actually ever used a Rob, it sucks. I actually haven't. It's, it's cool, but my god, it's so slow. It's a novelty. It's strictly a novelty to, to convince parents about it. And it doesn't even work on modern TVs anymore. If you want to really know the direction that Nintendo is trying to go with the NES and how afraid they were of the market crash in the United States, just, um, I think it's the Nintendo, what is it, the AVS or the AES? I think it's the AVS, that, which was the concept system before the NES, where essentially they use infrared controllers. It looks like a cassette deck. It's, it's super sleek, but it's, it's definitely meant to be a high piece of hardware. Because they were super concerned. They didn't know where they needed to go. And eventually they settled more on the toy route. This, I didn't even know this is, existed. The Nintendo AVS. It does look cool. Well, it's kind of funny. The whole reason why the NES, the iconic any like NES design, like the boxy thing even exists is partially due to mandates involving like how electronics could be uh, released in the US at the time. But also they wanted it to look nothing like a video game console. Yep. Which is why it's not a top loader. Which is ironic, because now it's like considered the de facto what you think when you think of video game console. The other key in innovation with the NES was the controller, which was the first console to utilize the D-pad, which first appeared on the Donkey Kong Game & Watch. Yes, yeah, so the Game & Watches did come out before the Famicom, because the D-pad was created with the, the Game & Watches. 
I had heard, I think through another podcast guest, I forget who, that part of the reason the NES was so successful was because of the D-pad, but actually Game & Watch technically did it first before the NES. Well, the Game & Watch were the ones that allowed Nintendo to patent the idea. If, if you pay attention to D-pads, it wasn't until like probably in the past, what, 10, 15 years, you start to see D-pads that are similar to Nintendo's. Take a look at the Master System's D-pad, not a D-pad. The Sega Genesis uh... is a disc. It's a disc. The funny part about the Genesis, though, is all a D-pad is is it's four buttons on a ball pivot. So the NES, the ball pivot, go, the controller is the plastic piece. It goes over the ball pivot. For the Genesis, the ball pivot is built into the plastic piece. does the same exact thing, but it's just different enough that it gets around the patent. And better for fighting games, don't at me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the place getting down the line, the PlayStation, they put the thing underneath the controller shell. That goes around the patent. That's why, if you ever wonder why the D-pad on the on the PlayStation controller is so weird, that's why. Yep. And that's why the D-pad on the Xbox controller is fucking terrible. Oh. That's why. They couldn't use Nintendo's D-pad. That's why the, the Xbox One is the first Xbox console with a usable D-pad, because it, it had expired by then. So now now that D-pad is all free reign, because it's been however many years the patents last for. I forget the... Yeah, yeah. they can basically do whatever they want now. Mm-hmm. So then the NES comes out. So you have these two precursor Sega systems. Did they never that never came out in uh, America? Okay, and then never came out in North America. And then I'm I vaguely remember the Master System coming out before Nintendo in America. Is that correct? It did not. It came out in 1986. So the Master System was originally known as the Sega Mark III in Japan, and it looks cool as fuck. It does. It, it looks slick. Although I do have a soft spot for the uh, Master Systems design, I guess you could say. It's it's cheesy. I love it too. But the, the Mark III looks way better. Oh, yeah. I guess before we get into the Master System, we should probably talk about Nintendo in their honestly kind of like illegal uh, practices they were doing at the time. But it was for a good reason. Like, I don't disagree with what Nintendo did. Because of what Nintendo did, it saved the video game industry in North America and, and pretty by proxy saved it for the entirety of the industry. Do tell. I don't know what you're talking about. So basically, when they came in, their biggest innovation with the NES was the lockout chip built into the console, which prevented non-licensed games from being played on the system. Now, the way Nintendo basically structured their thing is, if you wanted to make Nintendo games, you had to sign up to become a Nintendo licensee, and because you needed to have that Nintendo seal of quality on the cartridge to basically, for it to be allowed on the system. And licensees could only make, I believe it was either three or five, I want to say three for some reason, um, games per year, no exceptions whatsoever. And that was basically kind of, oh, and the biggest, the most infamous thing part of it was the um, exclusivity deal. You could only make games for the NES. Oh, so if you made it, if you want, if you got a Nintendo license to make games for the NES, you could only, that game could only be on the NES? Oh, no. So uh, a couple things here. First of all, that exclusive, the, uh, the the game limitation, the amount of games you can make for a system in a year, that was only exclusive to North America. That's because that's where the gaming crash happened. Okay. So um, this is, and we'll get, I'll, we'll explain more to that later because it goes into what Konami was doing. Thing and the Tengen. Oh, Konami. Oh, Tengen is, Tengen is a little bit different, but it's more okay. about the Konami thing. Okay. Um, in, in that instance. Now, when it comes to the exclusivity deal, because you'll see games that are on the Master System, the Nintendo, the PC, like the Atari 7800 that, that go across all these different platforms. The thing is, is that when you look at the Sega Master System in the United States or just anywhere across the world, yes, they would have a game that was technically created by a different developer. But what Sega would do is they would bring it over to their system and they recode it and design it themselves. 
So you would get a game like, I don't know, California Games, for example. Yeah. That game was designed by people. Um, maybe California Games isn't the best examples. I don't know who brought it over for the Master System. Uh, Rampage is a good one. Rampage. But Activision did make Rampage. Uh, that was actually made by the third party. So there was sometimes they could get around it. But for the most part, if you see a third party game that you know is a third party game, Sega on the Master System, Sega would end up being the ones who were developing it and publishing it. It wouldn't be the developer that released it in their, you know, that released it originally for that console or the NES. Or if they did in Japan, if they developed it for that system, they wouldn't bring it over to the United States. It would be published by Sega as a Sega game, who, by the way, at the time when it did come out in the United States in 1986, was being published by Sega was being published by Tonka. So Tonka was running all of Sega's operations in the United States. Because Sega actually went to Atari as well, and Atari (laughs) denied them too. They wanted that 7800, man. I know. I'm confused, which means listeners are going to be confused. So let me make sure I follow this. So you'll see games that were on NES and Master System and other systems during the area. But the developer who made it for the NES originally had a signed exclusivity deal. Did they sell Sega the rights to reprogram it and publish it themselves on the Sega to get around that exclusivity deal? How did that work? The exclusivity deal is really confusing. Yes. That's all I know. Like, I think it's more towards Japanese companies than North American companies. Okay. Because if you look at a lot of the games that did come out during that time that Sega would have to develop themselves and put on the system, I think like R-Type, R-Type's a great example. Mm-hmm. R-Type is on the Master System and Sega did that. So when you when you look at what R-Type did, I mean, that's an Irem game. It came out in the United States, like pretty much developed by Sega. And if I'm way wrong, I'm way wrong. But they they did that because if you pissed off Nintendo, Nintendo wouldn't allow you to license out that game. And Nintendo was king of the kill. So the majority of the Master Systems library is developed or published by Sega. They're like all published by Sega, with the exception of a few games. That's because of the exclusivity deal, because they didn't want to cross Nintendo in North America, who was just dominating the market. And this was also the start of Sega's like prominence as a mega developer because like sega doesn't get enough credit for how impressive their actual like in-game in internal developers were at the time and nintendo had all these stipulations and rules essentially to try to prevent another video game crash they were worried about that yes like you had to buy the cartridges directly from nintendo like you couldn't like make your own cartridges. They had to come from Nintendo. All the chips had to come from Nintendo. Like it was very restrictive. So, so for example, going back to that quality, the control quality control aspect that bill brought up was that they, you could only make so many games per year in North America. Now you saw examples of this and workarounds from this with uh, Konami because Konami made ultra games. Ultra games, that's right. So, like, you think to yourself, who made the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles games for the NES? You see Ultra. Yes, Ultra. No, it's Konami. Mm. Yep. Same with Metal Gear. Yep. So that was gone through the Ultra label brand. So they would just put it through a different company to be able to have more games per year. Essentially a shadow company, yeah. Acclaim and LJN. Yep. Acclaim bought LJN from uh, Universal, believe it or not. And um, they uh, just basically did the same thing. They, so a lot of the LJN games that are infamous on the Super Nintendo and uh, NES are actually uh, acclaimed games half the time. I don't feel like I fully wrapped my head around the exclusivity, but I get the concept of they were implementing rules to, to protect quality. They essentially had a monopoly on the industry at the time. Yeah, the monopoly part I don't agree with, but the quality control things that they did, I can completely understand. And I do I do understand why they did it, because they didn't. They were going to run into the same problems that Atari ran into, where you have a when you have third party developers just pretty much putting their shareware on a on a NES cartridge and selling it to the selling it to the public. 
quality control was important, but then people were also finding creative waves through publishing through different companies to get around that. Yeah, because they didn't have these regulations in Japan. They were extremely user-friendly in Japan. It's when it came to North America that they were complete and total utter dicks. <laughs> yeah. And then that's how the probably one of the most infamous like lawsuits of this era was the Tengen lawsuit. So Tengen is just a shell, is basically just a publishing name for Atari games, which was the arcade division of the original Atari. So Tengen was actually, believe it or not, was originally an officially licensed Nintendo publisher because their first three games were RBI Baseball, Pac-Man, and... Gauntlet. Yeah, Gauntlet. And they all came out in, like, traditional NES-style cartridges, like the normal ones with the seal of approval on them. The problem is, because Tengen was such a, like, new... They were basically coming out of the, the death of Atari and trying to, like, rebuild themselves up. They, they weren't going to survive with just three games a year. Not helped by... There was a chip shortage at the time, and Nintendo just could not get, like, the chips and cartridges out to the third-party developers. And it was Chip shortage. Yeah. <laughs> my air quotes here. Chip shortage. Yeah. But um, they could not get the cartridges out, so um, Tengen actually offered to go find, like, replacement chips, and Nintendo agreed if, as long as they would pass their standards, which, of course, they didn't, because it's Nintendo. And this basically pissed off uh, the president of Atari Games at the time, who was actually a former Namco guy, believe it or not. So what happened is they actually started to try to figure out a way to crack the uh, NES lockout chip, the 10NES program. And the way they did it was they falsified a false lawsuit with Nintendo to get into the patent office to get basically the patents for the 10NES program, which you normally would not be able to take out of the patent office. But if you're if it's under litigation, you can at the time. I don't I don't know if now it is, but um, it's really confusing. Gaming historian, if you know that YouTube channel, does a fantastic job of explaining it. So they made a lawsuit to get into like it sounds like discovery so that they could get a hold of some information. They illegally obtained that information. Yes. They, they, they completely illegally obtained the information to get the NES lockout chip in for, uh, coding. They, yeah. yeah, it was completely illegal. And then they falsified that they rewrote it and renamed it the Rabbit Chip. And that's how those um, those black um, Tengen cartridges came to be. Probably the most iconic. Um, Just look up Gauntlet Tengen or RBA Baseball Tengen or Afterburner. Afterburner's one. Oh, Tengen, which is Tengen, weird. Te Tengen Tetris is probably one of the most yep. famous ones because it's obscenely rare. Is there anything more in Gen? Three before we move on to Genesis. Well, I mean, we the we should talk about the last breath of, of Atari as well with the seventy eight hundred. We've kind of been alluding to it. I'll just be very quick with it because the history of the seventy eight hundred is really quick. It's relatively insignificant. Um, seventy eight hundred is supposed to come out like eighty three or eighty four in North America, and then the market crashed. And you know they were getting these offers from Nintendo and Sega, and they turned it down because they had their hardware. They had the seventy eight hundred. So I think they released the seventy eight hundred in the year nineteen eighty seven or nineteen eighty eight. And by that point, they were already getting outperformed by the by the Famicom and uh, the, Especially the, the Master, Master System. System. Yeah, it was they were just getting blown out. So when you're getting same games on the 7800 that you were getting outperformed on on the NES, like with Pole Position, they came out with Pole Position, but Pole Position was getting destroyed by Rad Racer. Pole Position was getting out was getting destroyed by Outrun. So yeah. they couldn't compete. It was this old hardware. Yes, they had it sold some. It sold some consoles because it had the benefit of being backwards compatible with the twenty six hundred, which had a massive library out there. But it just did not have the ponies to to get to where the NES was, and it just came out too late. And if it had come out in eighty four or eighty three, who knows what it would have happened? Like it just it was because it was great for that time. Yeah, biggest what could have been in gaming right there. The Atari was the OG, man. Like, the Atari set everything up. 
I mean, I'm just going to say what Nintendo would ultimately do. Uh, I know you wanted to bring something up really quick here, uh, Bill. So I'll let you. I'll let you take the floor on this. And we do have to talk about the Famicom Disk System though at some point. I think we might actually be better to talk about the Disk System first because I was going to just talk about some of the, the key like games from that era that came out. Uh, a lot of the listeners are are uh, come from different backgrounds and casual. Just for the people who know, Famicom is NES. When you say Famicom, it's just Japanese, right? Yes. So if you're here, Famicom Disk System, yes, that is an NES Disk System, which I'm assuming was only in Japan only, right? Yeah, never made it. So when we talk about, so you said like any uh, Super Mario Brothers was the defining game that really put Nintendo on the map. I would say I would I would agree with that um, certainly, but it wasn't Nintendo. Like Nintendo was going to be successful regardless because they had Don- they had Donkey Kong. True. Um, and you have to remember the Famicom was a success in Japan for two years without Super Mario Brothers. That is true. So it's not like Nintendo was going to go anywhere. They were outperforming Sega hand over fist in Japan. Then when it came out in the United States, yes, of course, they came out with Super Mario Brothers and the rest is history because yeah. that that is the premier game in all of video game history, except for maybe Tetris uh, with the Game Boy. But we'll get to that. Tetris is literally one of the most insane stories in gaming history that honestly could be its own podcast. So you're saying that the NES was out in Japan for two years prior before coming to America, and that was also prior before Super Mario Brothers. Did any of those games that were big in Japan come out in America, or did we just basically start from Super Mario Brothers in North America and go forward? All the black box games were in, in Japan first. So if it has a black box, like those the, the launch games, a lot of those games, they were, they were big Japanese games. Mm. Probably just say the biggest premier game in Japan was Donkey Kong. The Famicom was designed or the nes the famicom uh was designed to be able to be a as close to a perfect port of donkey kong as possible like i said earlier it was based off the donkey kong arcades machine architecture there was also uh like the regular mario brothers not before the super before super mario Bros. there was just the yeah. mario brothers arcade game uh there was wrecking crew donkey kong jr like there was a lot of like old like ba- basically the, the NES was living off of its arcade, all the Nintendo arcade games from the time. And it had to because the carts were so small in space. Which brings us to where I'll let Bill take over here, the Famicom disc, disc System. So the Disc System's origins are actually pretty fascinating because initially they were approached by a company called uh, Hudsonsoft, who um, had shown them this idea they had for a card-based media that could hold more space and was more cheaper to produce. And more powerful. And Nintendo was fascinated by it, but they weren't really feeling it at the time. So they passed on that, but they did remain sort of with a relationship with Hudson Soft to a degree. Because Hudson was the first third-party developer on the Famicom. Yes. In the process, they did a little bit of research and they discovered, like, I guess it's like a floppy disk is probably the best way to describe, which could hold more of the space. And the coolest thing about it was they were rewritable. So you could have one game on one side and another game on the uh, other side. And they could hold twice the space, and they were cheaper to produce. Yeah, uh, I think that at that time they could because the the Famicom discs, I mean the cartridges, couldn't hold that much in the carts. So the the reason they knew they had to, they had to do something else with the Famicom or or the the media in order to play games on is because Super Mario Brothers filled up an entire cartridge. Yes, like they had to scrounge around for extra space to do certain things within the game. I think some certain sounds, uh, so on and so forth. I don't know. Like, uh, there, there's something they did in order to make sure that everything fit in there. Yeah. So when they got to 
the Famicom disk system, they wanted to have more space for games. And that was the reason they came out with these magnetic disks is because they had allowed, they allowed more space. I don't know if it's 128 kilobytes total or 100 kilobyte, 128 kilobytes per side. I think it might be a total of 256 kilobytes yes. that were able to be on the, the, the disks. And that could have an entire game, or as Bill said, you could have the entirety of one game on one side, which is what they did for like Super Mario Brothers 2 in Japan. Not, not the one we got, but the lost no, levels. Yeah. Yep. Too hard for us Americans. And it is. And then on the other <laughs> side, you would have Ice Hockey, which yes. would be already a Famicom game, but you would be able to put the 128 kilobytes on that. They also had a cool concept where you could go to these kiosks and you could write your own games on them for like a fee. Which was like two bucks. Yes. Five bucks. Unfortunately, because of that, it makes collecting Famicom Disk System games kind of a pain because you might get something that's listed as one thing and then it will be something else because it was rewritten, which is a, which was a common thing at the time. Oh, so you could like, let's say I bought game A, I'm over game A, I could go to this kiosk and put a different game on that disc and overwrite it? Yeah, it's not very smart because I even think a lot of these stores that would be able to do that, they, they were licensed by Nintendo. So if you went there with like a Castlevania or a Metroid, in order to get your game rewritten, I don't think they would allow it. It was mostly for the sides that were empty, that were blank. Yeah, the intention was more for, like, obviously a lot of the games only would fill one side. So the intention was, oh, you'd have the blank side too. Oh, you could put something on that. Problem is not everybody followed that, so you kind of would have kind of a mess of uh, games kind of going around. I, I'm lucky. My entire Famicom Disk System collection that I have so far, I haven't ran into that issue. But I understand that's that's more of a luck thing, because sometimes you just get, oh, here's a blank disc. What's on it? Oh, this is cool. But a lot of major franchises started out on the Famicom Disk System. And one of the big reasons, one of the big advantages that it provided is that you could save your game. So it launched with, I think it launched in 1986 or 87. Yeah, it launched with The Legend of Zelda which was their premier game that came out with it. And that was because the Legend of Zelda was a 256 kilobyte game, if I'm getting my space correct. And it also provided additional sound channels and you could save your game. So you could save your game directly to the disc, which is something that the Famicom cartridges and at the time NES cartridges just couldn't allow because battery backup wasn't a thing yet. So other games uh, that were on the Famicom that debuted on the Famicom disc system were um, Metroid, Kid Icarus, Castlevania, Castlevania 2. Doki Doki Panic. Doki Doki Panic. Yep. A very important game. Very. In hindsight. All these big hitters came out first in Japan on the disc system. Yes, they came out on floppy disks. Oh, I did not know that. How, how do they save? How, we save? how did we get versions that can save in America on regular? Okay, so what happened during this time? So Nintendo was planning on bringing something out to the American market in order to compensate for this. So there's a lot of things going on during this time, as the aforementioned chip shortage. So these chip shortages were making it harder to get games uh on like onto cartridge into the united states so this wasn't a forethought of what was going on in japan when they were coming up the disk system this was strictly from a space and and hardware improvement kind of standpoint because they wanted to upgrade the famicom and make it more powerful in a sense because i mean let's face it i mean mark three was never a threat but they knew they needed to make their games bigger so that was never a forethought but when it came to the united states getting these games over here was was complicated. First of all, they they needed to figure out how to get more space onto these cards on these carts, and second of all, they had to figure out um, how to maintain the entirety of what was going on with the game. So 
one of the workarounds they did is while it was being released in Japan, while you had all these things going out the Famicom disk system with the chip shortage and then not figuring out how to get more space on carts, they developed a chip, which I think is called the MMC. I could be wrong on the acronym here, but essentially what the MMC did was allowed to have more storage on a Famicom cart. So now you could put all of Zelda onto an NES cartridge. Now you could put all of Metroid onto an NES cartridge and you would have no degradation. So one of the improvements that you would get in the United States is, yes, you would lose the sound channels on some of these games, which arguably are better or worse, depending on your tastes, but you would have no loading times. So loading times were a huge detriment when it came to the Famicom system. And if you don't believe me, go play Castlevania 2, where, yes, you can save, but it takes about 30 seconds when you leave town. And then if you get hit by an enemy who knocks you back into the town, that's another 30 seconds of loading. Battery backups were still very rare at the time. So a lot of games to get around that would, would just replace the backup with a password screen. Yes. So when you see stuff like uh, Metroid, which I think is one of the first games to have a password save system, because that it was a big deal when they came out with a password save system. Punch Out had that too. Yes. But Punch Out was not a disk system game. That was always a card okay. game. But that, I think that came out after the MMC chip. That's why you never saw the disk system in the United States or anywhere other than Japan. Is because by the time they were ready to bring this over to other areas, they already had a solution of how to fit those games onto the cartridges. Now, for a game like Zelda that was big, it has so many situational things, that's the game they decided to give battery backup. Explain what a battery backup is for everybody. So essentially, as a lithium-ion battery that's attached to the cartridge that... It's basically a watch battery. It's a watch battery that just holds your data onto, like, RAM. Wait, so the, the cartridge has a battery in it? Yes. Yeah, that's the reason why you'll get, like, say, like, Pokemon games are infamous for this. You'll get them when they're just dead, like, you can't save anymore. Mm-hmm. Because the battery died. Yep, the watch battery said You can easily replace them if you know how to open the cartridges up. It's just a lot of those huh. batteries have long since died. So the combination between the battery backup and, uh, you are right, I looked it up, this MMC chip, that's the correct acronym. Between those two, they were basically able to get the same pros from the disk system without selling everybody a new peripheral, and they could just plug these into your regular NES and get all the pros. Absolutely. Yeah. The only real lost thing they lost was the additional sound channels. But, um, and Konami found ways around that with, uh, Castlevania three Castlevania three on the Famicom is superior to the NES version just for the soundtrack. The most important thing about the MMC chip, not just in terms of size, because that was a huge, that was a game changer for Nintendo is that Nintendo started realizing it could do more with its cartridges Oh, yeah. and which is why you look at a game like Super Mario Brothers 3, that is a game that just was not possible with the technology that the Famicom had in 1983. There was no way they could have made that game at that time. But with the process improvement they had with putting chips onto the actual cart, that made the game possible. So NES games late into the NES's life, like 1988 and on, wouldn't, had, would never have been possible in the early days of the Famicom. Two games in particular that I, I feel like have to be mentioned just because it's partially my shtick on on instagram final fantasy and dragon quest yeah i mean mmc wise i i would have to look because we did the 35th anniversary of dragon quest this year so that came out before the disc system so they're able to put that on the cart that's a very very small game final fantasy you're right yeah i just i i feel like those have to be mentioned just because they pretty much created the jrpg genre for consoles as we know it yeah we did a i did a dragon quest episode with chris and it gets props for being the og but Fuck that game. It's terrible. At least on the NES. Oh, yeah. Dragon Quest 1. Well, even the remakes aren't spectacular either, but it is clearly the first of its kind. Yes. So it gets a pass because it's the first, but 
retroactively playing it is was just rough. When I think of like NES era RPGs, there's like three categories I put them in. There's like Dragon Quest style, which is that behind the back view, like first person, kind of more humorous open world kind of thing. Then you get Final Fantasy style, which is the the side view like combat, and it's more kind of serious with its tone and direction. And then there's Shin Megami Tensei, which is its own mess <laughs> in the background. Wait, that that was on NES? Megami Tensei was, which is the predecessor, because Shin Megami Tensei means new Megami Tensei. Ah, Tensei. The series has kind of just been retroactively referred to as Shin Megami Tensei. And if you ask Kate, he'll fight you over Ultima for the NES. He thinks that's the best-selling game no. of all time for that system. No. <laughs> you, everyone can reference Retro Hangover, and Chris is wildly misinterpreting that conversation. But we're already 60-some-odd minutes in, and I, we got lots more video game history to go. So we're not going to get distracted, oh. but Chris is wrong, for the record. I'm the prophet. God said so. So there's not, you can't say shit about it, you heathen. <laughs> uh. Oh, I think that I think the argument was what sold more Dragon Quest or Ultima. That's what the argument really was. I don't even know why that's an argument. The argument was because they gave away half a million copies of Dragon Quest, so of course it sold more because it was given away. They bought Dragon Quest and got a subscription to Nintendo Power. That's how it yeah. how it happened. So I actually I still think it's actually amazing that we actually got Dragon Quest one through four on the NES. Yeah, I agree that we got all four of them. That that is a that is a triumph. We only got Final Fantasy 1. Granted, it came out over here by the time Japan got 3. <laughs> but other other things that are going on in the in the third generation is um and I'll let I'll let Bill take this one is the master system and not doing anything in in North America at all. It just it came out like a wet fart. Tonka didn't know how to market it. Cuz when you say Tonka, you mean like Tonka toys, right? Yes. <laughs> Sega was not publishing their own stuff. They went through Tonka for the Master System, the first. Tonka was handling everything for their home console division. Everything. Interesting. I do remember one kid having a Master System. Like, I saw it once. I knew that's that was it. So, Sega has always been, like, a fascinating company in that they've never, aside from... We'll get to it later, but aside from one era, Sega has never been able to do anything in their home co- country of Japan, <laughs> where they are always the third place company that, or like second place company that has great ideas, nobody pays attention, so ahead of their time, never seem to get it at the right time. Master System, America came out, couldn't compete with the NES just because NES was literally king in America. There was no competition at all. Europe, on the other hand, Master systems were, like, selling through the roof. Like, everybody had a master system. Like, it was just what was available, and, like, they got all the games, and then particularly Brazil due to the licensing and stuff. Like, What's the reason for Europe embracing them? They had the Nintendo as well, didn't they? They just didn't gravitate towards Nintendo. They didn't like Nintendo. Sega of Europe had a stronger presence at the time than Sega of America, which, as you can tell by Taka doing most of the work, wasn't quite a dominant force yet. Sega of Japan, Sega of Europe, Sega of America are basically three companies that all kind of share one main roof. They're all extremely competitive with each other to the point where they don't like when one succeeds more than the other, especially because Japan was tanking at the time. And that was who was basically creating everything. I believe, Chris, you guys went over that with the 32X Sega CD uh, Saturn fiasco was some competition with Sega of Japan and Sega of America, right? 
Yeah, I, I don't know the specifics, but yeah, Sega of America and Sega of Japan always been butting heads. Oh, they hated each other. Like, they despised yeah. each other. And what I don't understand is if you're Sega of Japan, where it originated, why aren't you solving that problem? Because it's the Japanese pride thing. I mean, just like there's an American pride aspect of things, Japanese, the Japanese have their own pride. And one of the things about Nintendo, and one of the biggest reasons I think it failed in Europe, is because Nintendo of Japan runs everything. And yeah. the Japanese just, they... They didn't understand the European market, and when they landed there and they couldn't get it, they just didn't know what to do about it. That's why there's only one country in Europe where it succeeded, and I think that was Sweden. And that's because someone essentially tricked Nintendo into letting him be the importer-exporter for for Nintendo of Sweden and made it popular there, through the especially through the Game & Watch distribution. You also have to keep in mind, Europe is where like the microcomputers and like stuff was like at like its biggest... And the master system was more powerful. Yes. So it was more comparable to a microcomputer, whereas an NES was, I mean, it was weaker than an Amiga. It was definitely better than a ZX Spectrum, I think. It wasn't, it was more expensive, far more expensive. And uh, you could, like for Commodores and, and Spectrums, you could just pirate the shit out of games where you couldn't do that with an NES. Sega of Japan was really good at making hardware and like pushing it out. But they never really did anything to market it and like give people a reason why they should play it. Sega, Sega of America wasn't quite established yet, but Sega of Europe had great marketing campaigns to get like the system noticed. I, I really think that's pretty much the, the long and the short of the the third generation. There is some overlap with the fourth. I can't really think of anything with the third unless you want to bring something up. One thing I do want to mention is it's kind of a fascinating thing I noticed. There's a good graph I saw of like the time frames of each generation and how they overlap. It is actually really rare to see a point on the like a point on this like chart where there was only one generation currently out. Yeah, the uh, Wikipedia chart, interestingly enough, the third and fourth generation almost end at the same time, according to this. The fourth generation is fascinating because it almost is 100% always overlapping with another generation. Yes. Yeah, and the fourth generation essentially starts almost right after the se- uh, the third generation does. And that's because of the PC Engine. Oh, yeah. So, like, the PC Engine came out in 1987. Yes. And you remember how earlier on I mentioned those cards that Hudson Soft was uh, trying to get Nintendo inter- interested in? And for the uninitiated, I think, if I'm correct, PC Engine is the same thing as Turbo Graphics, The same thing, right? Yes. That's okay. correct. Okay. But I think more people at this point are familiar with PC Engine because it was far more successful than Turbo Graphics. Far more successful. Yes. The only reason people know Turbo Graphics now is because we just got the mini, and it it's starting yeah. to get some sort of popularity over here now. You want to talk about a company that was ahead of their time? It's it's fucking Hudson oh, and yeah. NEC, mostly Hudson. Yeah, NEC just kind of was the 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 funding for that. Hudson really did most of the work. Is Turbo Graphics the American name and PC Engine the Japanese name, or how does that work? Turbo Graphics the American one. I believe PC Engine was also used in Europe. No. Nope. Europe was supposed to be. It didn't come out in Europe officially. Oh, okay. I did not know that. It, it did, but it had a very extremely limited release. Okay. That's very hard to find one. So, okay. But I guess that kind of kicks off the fourth generation. And that's where it begins is like Bill was saying, when Hudson went to Nintendo with this idea for a new chip, and Nintendo turned them down, they said, okay, we're going to make our own console and kind of gave, gave NEC a horrendous deal that NEC accepted. Yeah, NEC is not the smartest company. I, you'll you'll learn when you look at video games, especially when it came to North America. That's where they got burned. In Japan, it worked out fine for them, but in North America, they just got destroyed. But 
they they came out with the system is called the PC Engine. And if you haven't seen a PC Engine, it's this tiny it's, it's it's a tiny 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 system. It's about the size of a Walkman when you compare it to a PC Engine or Core Graphics. It's um it's it's hilarious. Oh yeah. So they 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 come out with a system called the PC Engine, and the reason why like I could see someone trying to say that the PC Engine is technically a third generation console. It's not. It's it's a fourth generation console, but there could be an argument for it because the PC Engine was not designed to be the next generation of hardware. It was designed to compete against Nintendo's Famicom because it came out in 1987. It was an 8-bit console, but it had a 16-bit graphical processing unit, which is why when they brought it to the United States, they called it TurboGrafx-16. And the the games looked fantastic. They came out on little credit cards, uh, credit card size. And um, yeah, they're way, 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 way ahead of their time. It was it, The ingenuity that they had was successful to the point where the PC Engine started beating out Nintendo um, in Japan regularly. Like it started eating into Nintendo's market share, selling outselling it every single week. Yeah, the PC so, Engine was insane in Japan. Like how successful that thing was. The PC Engine in the same in the same generation, because now you they ended up competing with the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo. Uh, back to Bill's point about how terrible Sega did in their home country. The PC Engine outsold the Sega Genesis in Japan. Yes. But what's funny is. Before we completely jump over to fourth generation, this comes out in America and it does nothing against the NES. Like NES sales are still through the roof, and Turbo uh, the TurboGrafx 16 looked cool. I mean, it came with uh, Keith Courage and Alpha Zones, like one of the most. Which is a huge mistake. Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of like this game. I like it. I like Keith Courage. Uh, the the Turbo Graphics uh, issues just they stem deep though. Like they released it too late. I think they came out with it in '89. They they should have packed in Blazing Lasers or R Type or Legendary Axe, which you know they have more of that arcade appeal because the arcade was still big back then. So if they packed in R Type with that thing, which they could have, or they packed in Blazing Lasers, which they could have, but they didn't. They packed in Keith Courage, which is just complete weeb stuff. And the 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 weeb market in 1989 was. No market. It did not have a market. It was not present. It, it took two years to bring over the United States, and by the time they brought it over, Sega had brought over its Mega Drive and called it the Genesis, and it just it, it was already weaker than the Genesis, and Sega had figured out marketing yep. in the time that Tonka had failed them. Sega of America was officially established, uh, and the particular, I, I always like to say the guy who truly kickstarted Sega of America's like dominance in America was uh, Tom Kalinske. Yes, who was pretty much the guy behind almost every great, great idea Sega did. He was also responsible for a lot of their downfall, but we'll get to that later. The Mega Drive, uh, the, which is the Genesis here in the United States, so the Mega Drive, which is called everywhere but the United States. Because of a licensing issue, I believe. I'm not sure why. I'll take your word for it on that. I have no idea why. I think Mega Drive was copywritten or something. It's the, it's the same thing reason with it's the same reason with Dragon Quest, Dragon Warrior. Right. Our copyright laws are weirder than Japan, which I don't really think has copyright laws. Except for Famicom, for some reason. Yeah. Okay, so I gotta double back here. This is pretty funny. Now, Nintendo has Famicom now, but if you ever look at old Nintendo games in Japan, and even Super Nintendo games for a while, you will not see the word Famicom on the disc. You will not see the word Famicom anywhere on the system. You will not see it anywhere on the games. Uh, You will only see Family Computer. Because yes. Famicom is a portmanteau of Family Computer. And you might ask yourself, well, why don't we see Famicom on Nintendo Famicom games? And that's because Sharp owned the copyright to the Katakana of Famicom. Yes. 
And that's because they had something called a, the, there's a family convection oven that they called the Famicon, so, or C-O-N. But when you put it in Katakana, they, it's, it was spelled the same as Famicom. Kate here in post-production editing. For those that don't know what Katakana is, quick lesson. Japanese has three main alphabets, Hiragana, Katakana, and Kanji. Hiragana and Katakana are phonetically the same, the same sounds, but they use different symbols. Hiragana is used for words that are original to the Japanese language, and Katakana is used to phonetically translate foreign words into Japanese sounds. And last, Kanji is select symbols ripped from traditional Chinese characters. Back to the show, bitches! Because of the way they pronounce words. So Famicom was trademarked. So Nintendo couldn't trademark Famicom. So in a brilliant marketing effort, in a joint venture between Nintendo and Sharp, Sharp was able to create their own hardware, which was called the Sharp Twin Twin Famicom, which was a combination of the Famicom disk system and the Famicom into one unit. And that has that is the only system, the only official licensed system that has the word Famicom on it. And when you boot it up for the disk system, it has Famicom at the loading screen, at the boot up screen. I didn't actually know that story, so that's fascinating, actually. <laughs> it's really, it's really cool. And that's why the only piece of hardware from that era that has Famicom on it will be made by Sharp. That's interesting. That's actually really cool. Now, where were we on? Oh, yeah. The, the Mega Drive comes out yes. in Japan. This was the start of Sega's, like, in-your-face advertising. Cause Sega! Oh. Sega. Yeah. Well, even before that, this was, like, the famous Genesis does, what Nintendo commercial. Yeah. I was going to say, before that in Japan, they, they flopped. Oh, yeah. It was a massive fart. It was just awful. But then they came to America, and I'll let you take over okay. from there. So, in America, this at this point, Sega's entire marketing campaign was changed from we're Sega, we're different. It was all about, it was more about, we're Sega, we're better than Nintendo in every way. Like, right. We're the mature system. We're for the teenagers. We're for the adults. That's for kids. You don't need that anymore. Look at what we have. We have sports games, like all these games with these big name athletes at the time. Michael Jackson's on the system. It's like all this like crazy stuff. Like the commercial was probably one of the most in your face, like tactics ever. And at the time, cause it was a lot of people forget that commercial was not competing with the Super Nintendo. That commercial was competing with the NES. And everything in that commercial is right. Like, there's not nothing wrong about that commercial at all, because it was true. The Genesis, in every single way, was superior to the NES. Not to mention the Genesis came out with Altered Beast. Yes. Which, in the United States, was a newer arcade game, and it was almost an arcade-perfect one-to-one port. And that's also one of the reasons, I mean, it, it didn't really outsell the TurboGrafx-16 when it came out by huge margins, but it was one of the reasons, you know, people paid attention to the Genesis in North America is because Altered Beast was essentially an arcade-perfect port. Plus, yes, the in-your-face uh, advertising shortly afterwards it kept that system mm. afloat. It was also like the beginning of the bit wars, as you could say. The original Genesis models were famous, too, because they had the 16-bit right on the front and then the famous high-definition graphics. Well, the TurboGrafx-16. Mm-hmm. It's in the name. Yep. Uh, everything was 16-bit, even though the TurboGrafx-16 technically is not a 16-bit system. It does have a 16-bit GPU, so that's how they got around it. Mm-hmm. But that's when they started saying 16-bit is better than the 8 bits of Nintendo. They weren't quite into blast processing yet. That would have come later with Sonic. Um, and that's when they really started to into Nintendo's market share. And I guess to transition into that, when uh, the Super Nintendo comes out, which is probably one of the most hyped up consoles at the time, 
because it was Nintendo's successor. It was going to be, it was going to be basically the final. We're going to finally take Sega down because Sega's been kicking our butt for a little bit. How long was uh, Genesis out before Super Nintendo came out? How much of a head start did they have? Um, Super uh, Nintendo about two came, years, three yes. years. Super Nintendo came out ninety one. I believe the Genesis was ninety. I mean, the Genesis was eighty nine. I believe. Okay. Yeah, it was 88 in Japan. Yes, okay. Because it came out a year after the PC Engine. It was 88 in Japan and 89 in the United States, North America. So it had a, a couple of years um, to build up a, a marketplace and like kind of a impression. And at the time, like when you look at the Genesis, it's actually kind of funny because the controller has... I actually think the controller has the same amount of buttons on it that the NES controller. It does. They're just shifted around a little to look nicer. I still, to this day, say the Genesis controller is like one of the biggest freaking controllers you can old but it's comfortable it is it's an amazing controller the original version anyways and it's such a step up from the master system too now one of the great things that sega did too and probably a stroke of marketing genius even though you know everyone says you you know they don't know what the master system is they didn't own a master system is they came out with a device called the power base converter yes which allowed you to play your master system games on your sega genesis and in fact you can take your genesis controller you can plug it into a master system Going back, you can actually plug your Genesis controller into an Atari twenty six hundred, and it works. Wait, you can plug a Genesis controller into a twenty six hundred? Yeah, and it works. Yeah, <laughs> it, works. it works. Wow, fantastic! You should never use the joystick. You, you're always using a Genesis controller. <laughs> <laughs> Same with the Master System, except for the games that don't work with it. Yeah, because there's but like two games that don't for some reason. There's a couple. Wonder Wonder Boy, Wonder Boy two. I know it doesn't. Yeah. Wonder Boy two does not. And uh, Monster Land. Oh, you can also use a Genesis controller on a ColecoVision. Yep, because it had the same port, which makes sense because the ColecoVision was an SG one thousand. Yes, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they come up with this device called the Power Base Converter, and you can put it in your Genesis. You can play your Master System games. Now, why is this important? It's not really because no one owned a Master System in the United States, but it is something that the Genesis is showing that they could do backwards compatibility. That mm. they can go back to their previous hardware. But what, what I also think is really cool about that is that backwards compatibility goes a lot deeper than just being a thing that plugs in the top. Because the Genesis actually had all the hardware from the Master System incorporated into its board. Like, I believe the Master System CPU was used for sound capabilities on the Genesis's hardware, but could still be used as a CPU for Master System stuff. And I believe its, its sound thing was a co-sound process. It was kind of like one of those, they designed the system from the get-go to be backwards compatible. The only reason it isn't from the get-go is because of a cartridge limitation. It's something that you wouldn't see ever again until uh, the PS3 when it had a cell processor built into the launch edition. My question with the Master System and backwards compatibility to the Genesis or Mega Drive, I'm assuming no one had a Master System in America, but I'm assuming in Europe, that was a big deal. It could have been, yeah. It absolutely, it absolutely could have been. Because as we were saying with the 5200 earlier, that was a big question when it came to parents deciding to pick up a Super Nintendo, was, well, can my kid play their Nintendo games on the Super Nintendo? And if they can't, we're, why would we get it for them? Mm-hmm. Like, I, we, they have a Nintendo, there's still games coming out from the Nintendo, so they don't need a Super Nintendo. Why would they need that? They have their system. But if you had a Genesis, you, didn't, you could have traded in your Master System, if you had a Master System. And you could have gotten a Genesis with a power base converter, and they had deals for it that they advertised with that you could have gotten a Genesis with a power base converter in several games. And all of a sudden, if you were a proud Master System owner, all of ten, all ten of them, they could they could play those games on their Genesis. Those are ten very happy kids. Bless their hearts. <laughs> also, another another thing about the uh, 
master system that's not 100% known is it wasn't region locked. For Europe, for Europe and North America, it's not region, region locked. It is with yes. Japan. Is it? Okay. I've never played yes. a Japanese one. You can't. They're a completely different form factor. That's true, yeah, because it was the Mark III, and the Mark yep. III had a different design. They were more vertical, like an Atari cartridge. Yeah, that's that's right. That that would carry over to the Genesis, although you'd have to modify the cartridge slot for it to work. The Genesis itself actually isn't region locked. the The cartridges are region locked. That's the that's a key thing, and they changed the shape slightly. Because I know one of the most famous instances is Streets of Rage. If you put the Japanese version of Streets of Rage in a American Master uh, American Mega uh, Genesis, it comes up as a uh, bare knuckle. Yep, and there's actually mods you can make to your Genesis and just swap the region. It'll actually change the text because everything's within the cart. It's it's cool. Um, it's it, fascinating. It is it's like a lot of the early Japanese Genesis games. You can just import them, and there's no issue. And once it became popular in North America, like wildly popular, that's when you start seeing the the region locking within the cartridges themselves for the Genesis. But you can take a Jap- an early Japanese Mega Drive cart and put it right in your Genesis, and it works fine. You just have to modify the slot because it doesn't. Mm-mm. It's the other way around. They have to modify the slot. We don't. Why would a hardware company, because it seems like it would drive cost up and manufacturing costs, have two different form factors for systems that ultimately play the same games? Believe it or not, it's not to stop Americans from importing games over. It's to stop the Japanese from importing the American versions over because it's cheaper to buy them and bring them over than it would be to buy them in Japan. It's a total market thing. You have to think this was way before globalization or global markets or even the concept of a truly global market. Like it was just starting to get there in terms of sales. Like people were going to be importing games. That's taking away from like brick and mortar shops in your own home country. So that's why you do a region lock. So if like Japan, they really want to sell like, let's say that the, a version of a game in North America comes out that everyone in Japan wants to get uh, Sonic Hedgehog is an example. It came out in North America first. Right. So let's say that Japan is super hyped for Sonic the Hedgehog. And I don't know what the gap was. It wasn't very big, like it wasn't significant. But let's say it came out a year before North America and Japanese. The Japanese were super hyped for it. Doesn't really have a big language barrier. They could be like, you know what? Instead of buying it here in Japan from a Japanese store and and the Japanese market, I'm going to import it from an American seller. So then America gets all the money. Sega looks at the game as a failure because they didn't sell any game in Japan. And then Japanese retailers are mad at Sega for a game that was supposed to be hyped up. So that's kind of the concept behind region locking. I I guess my question was, why would the actual cartridge form factor physically be different? Just an additional barrier. Just just add a barrier. Okay. Because I would think that like if you're manufacturing hardware... Why would you want to tool your factory for two different form factors? Seems like you would save the NES did it. And yeah, well, that was also partially just because of American like standards for electronics at the time. And the, the way they just wanted to market it a lot differently as, as well. The uh, Super Nintendo, actually, the cartridges don't match up. But the only thing that actually prevents you from putting a fam- Super Famicom cartridge in an American uh, SNES is there's two little tabs at the bottom of the uh, cartridge slot that prevent it from a uh, inserting properly and i tore that shit out when i was a kid i took a player of pliers and i ripped it out the uh so you were so did you import japanese like rpgs chris tear the tabs out and play yes. of yeah. course you did what what did you import i totally imported final fantasy 5 oh hell yeah nice yeah i only got four and five i need to get six the american version of six is superior 
Just for the Ted Woosley translation. It's a good translation. There's some things missing. But, but that gets us talking about the Super Nintendo. So the Super Nintendo, like like Bill was saying, was extraordinarily hyped. So Sega's starting to build some market share. Uh, the TurboGrafx-16 is dead. Um, the PC Engine is still roaring in Japan. Europe is dedicated to the Mega Drive. Uh, but video, video games still aren't really much of anything in Europe for the most part, not compared to the other two markets. They're, they're still very focused on their microcomputer culture. Um, you get into the Super Nintendo. Super Nintendo comes out in Japan, I think, in 1990. And it's, it's, it's an amazing runaway success. You know, they, they love it. They're, they're enjoying it. With only two games at launch in Japan, anyways. What was it? Super, I don't even know what the two games were in Japan. Super Mario World and F-Zero. Uh, okay. Which both were launch titles for us as well, if I remember correctly, with Pilot Wings. We had Pilot Wings and Gradius 3 as well. Yes. So you got so it comes out in Japan, big success. Comes out it comes out in the United States, big success. But the big problem for Nintendo at this time is Sonic the Hedgehog had been released in 1990 and it started one of the most famous not technically false advertising campaigns but a little stretching the truth at bits. Mm-hmm. Blast processing. So this comes back to the, the the most powerful console argument, which, okay, if you want to get technical, the Neo Geo. This generation is the one asterisk, I will say. Yes. So between the three consoles, you can make the argument that every single one of them had their advantages. Technically, the PC Engine was the weakest. It was also the earliest. Technically, the most powerful was the Super Nintendo. Not even technically, like the most powerful was the Super Nintendo. But what the Sega, what the Sega Genesis slash Mega Drive had was it had a a fast processor, which, if I remember correctly, seven megahertz, seven and a half megahertz, or something like that, which was slightly faster than the PC engines, if I remember correctly. But the thing is, what the PC engine had an eight bit processor, so in terms of processing, the Mega Drive was superior. Except that the PC engine could display more colors on screen at once and had a bigger palette. That was the Genesis's biggest downfall was its color palette was significantly. Weak, uh, weaker compared to its competition, and its sound chip was was well, crap. So, well, most it's just because most people didn't know what the fuck to do with it. So, the Sega Genesis sound card is one of the most contentious sound cards in video game history. If you knew what to do with it, that thing was probably one of the most impressive like sound cards, in my opinion. But not everyone's used Okashiro or uh, <laughs> Howard Drossen or uh, Technosoft, whoever did the Thunder Force. Uh, the Sonic, uh, the guy who did Sonic 1 and 2, there was a bunch. Yeah. Well, Sonic 1 and 2 was professional musicians. Yeah, that was, uh, I forget his name, but uh, it was the guy from the band uh, Sweet Dreams, I think, or something. Dreams, yeah, I think. Something like that. That's the reason why the Sega has to pay money to use Green Hill Zone. <laughs> I didn't, I actually didn't know that the color palette was uh, not as wide for the Sega Genesis, but that as you said that, I was thinking, like, I can only think of a f- one, two games that had kind of like a non-drab color palette, and that would be Comic Zone, Earthworm Jim. But the Super Nintendo, I can think of lots of examples with lots of bright, poppy colors. N- Nintendo's color palette was by and far the most impressive of the three systems. It wasn't It wasn't even comparison. Yeah. Plus, their sound chip was designed by Ken Kutaragi, and as Sony made their sound chip. The beginning of one of the most important events in video game history but we'll get to yes that and this is one because the playstation one is the greatest console of all time according to god i know a lot about this story so this is actually one part of gaming history i actually know about and we will definitely get we'll, to uh, it we'll get to it worship after. false gods <laughs> we'll see about that but um what, what's interesting about the the super nintendo sound card in particular is fascinating 
because most sound cards at that point, they used kind of, it was like a, uh, basically they had a bunch of preset sounds and they would manipulate them to get the different sounds. And that's kind of how it worked for all of them. It was all coded in. The Super Nintendo sound card used sampling and it had like samples that it would draw from to make the sounds. And that's how you could get like those almost or perfect orchestral like soundtracks and like act razor, for example. Oh yeah. Or, um, final, how final fantasy six is possible. I still, I'm not sure. Or a chrono, chrono Trigger. Mm. Tales of Fantasia with the vocal vocalized opening track. Earthbound. Earthbound, it's weirdness. <laughs> you have like Monty Python's Flying Circus sampling inside the opening track, like the naming track. Uh, yeah, the, the Super Nintendo was doing some amazing things with technology at the time. But the reason that Sega could make faster shmups and had fluid frame rates for a lot of their faster moving games is because the clock speed for the Super Nintendo was up like a paltry three point something megahertz. This was probably the first real console war, I guess you could say, that really meant anything. Mm -hmm. And one of the key things about the early console wars was the systems were truly different, like beasts. And there wasn't a lot of games released on both systems that you could really make comparisons, like what good comparisons of. There was only like a few far in between. And like one of the ones I think of with Genesis and Super Nintendo is uh, Earthworm Jim. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. Yep. Looks prettier on the super nintendo but i actually think it has a better soundtrack on the genesis and it plays better because it was designed for the genesis i was i specifically i uh, was a genesis kid everyone around me had super nintendos which i did get one eventually but i would have many playground arguments and earthworm jim was one of the ones that we would argue about because i would argue that yeah it's slightly the colors were better and i do remember we wouldn't i didn't have the terminology for color palette then then it was just like it looks mm-hmm. better Right? That's what little kids are just, it looks better on the Super Nintendo. Mm-hmm. But I would always argue it plays better. It's tighter. It feels better on the Genesis. Now, part of that was I was just saying that because I wanted to be a Genesis. But I actually do remember playing Super Nintendo games. Now, some of them I think is because the game itself was laggy, but I used to play Mag- Magic Sword at a friend's house all the time. And that game had mad, mad, mad slowdown. And it might have just been the game, mm-hmm. but I associated Super Nintendo. With chugginess. Our Gradius 3, uh, the, which launched with the Super Nintendo, is notorious for its slowdown. In fact, you could argue, I think it's been proven that Konami made program the game around the slowdown. Because that game is almost entirely, you can't play that game or beat that game. I won't say you can't because there has been mods and people play it and they love it. But um, it's much more difficult if you don't play the game with the slowdown incorporated. Like, they knew that it was going to face slowdown. If you want to go shmup for shmup... Uh, there's Thunder, there's Thunder Spirits, and on the Super Nintendo, which is Thunder Force Three on the Sega Genesis. It's essentially the same game, and it performs much better on the Genesis. And it's not bad on the Super Nintendo, but in terms of performance, it is a much better Genesis game. So if if you look, if you're looking for fast paced games, and this is where it comes into blast processing, which Sega used very effectively. Uh, the Genesis was better at doing so. But if you wanted some more slower, more deliberate, but better sounding and more colorful games, the Super Nintendo was going to be your jam for the most part. So an- another thing that was common with the Super Nintendo and Genesis was you'd have two very similar games, but were just different, like made by different teams because the, obviously the car- hardware compatibility. And a good um, example would be like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 4 the Turtles in Time compared to the Hyperstone Heist. Hyperstone Heist, yes. Much, much better on the Super Nintendo. But the Genesis version is faster and yes. has slightly better controls. So I looked up a list of games that were on both 
then it's split into three games that were on both games that were on the SNES and the 32X and CD. And then it also has a list of games that were the same, but they're actually developed. They're sort of different games like Aladdin would be. Uh-huh. So Aladdin is another great, great example because the Genesis version in that case is superior to the uh, Super Nintendo version. The Super Nintendo version is still good, but yeah, the Genesis version is superior. I've seen some arguments lately, some some spicy hot takes lately that the Super Nintendo version is actually better. Hey, look, it's okay to be wrong. But another thing we need to mention when it comes to comparison, something that Genesis couldn't do that the Super Nintendo could. Actually, the Sega CD could do, but for some reason, no one really took advantage of it, was sprite scaling, or as we like to call it as Mode 7. Mode 7 was like the coolest shit, I had to admit, even as a kid. God damn it. It looks awful now and makes me want to vomit half the time, but in 1991-92, that was the shit, man. Castlevania 4, I still want to throw up. Yeah, I was going to say the Castlevania level with Mode 7 background was mind-blowing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was only Japan only, but I played it later because of JRPGs. It's Terranigma, I believe it's called. Uh, Terranigma. The world yeah. map has fact, that Mode 7. That was translated, too. And we... Well, it was uh, it, it released in the PAL regions, officially. I have a ROM card so, that I've played it. It's it, yep. that game's so good. But Nintendo did a really, really good job of advertising the mode. I, well, not advertising the mode seven, but making use of the mode seven. Well, I mean, two of its launch titles were like Pilot Wings and F Zero, and they used different variations of it. In fact, uh, Pilot Wings, if you get a EverDrive, if you just get a standard EverDrive uh, for your Super Nintendo, you cannot play Pilot Wings on it because it has a special chip. The the Super Nintendo was also the era of where like added in like enhancement ships really became kind of a big deal in gaming. I mean, already, it really already was because of the NES and the MSC Now, I don't charts. remember it being, ad- the only add-in chip that I remember being advertised was the, the Star Fox and I think Super FX. The yeah. Super FX. Yeah. And there were a lot more than that. Like, there were tons of little chips. What are the other ones that were used that people might not know? The CO2 chip, I think it's called, was used in, uh, it was made by Capcom and that was used in a uh, Mega Man X two and three, and that's how they did the wireframe stuff. Oh. Yeah, Mega Man X three is really hard to emulate on any system, uh, specifically X three. X two is a little easier. I even think there's a special chip in X one. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, there might be. Um, another famous one was uh, Kirby Superstar had a special chip, which I think added extra memory. I think because that's a big game. Yeah, Super Mario RPG has a chip in it. Yep, that, that, uh, was that is not the Super FX. Yep. I thought the Super Mario RPG was the FX chip, is it not? A different chip that Square made. And I think Yoshi's Island has the FX chip, right? They have the FX. It has the FX chip, too. So there was the original FX chip, and then there was an upgraded one that was only used on three games, and it was Yoshi's Island, Doom, and Winter Gold, which only came out in Europe. We're kind of talking about the FX chip, and that was popularized by... I can't talk. Popular. It was made popular. <laughs> there it is. Yes. By by Star Fox. Uh, by Star Fox in 1993. So let's kind of talk about the events that were happening up until then, between 91 and 93. So in between 91 and 93, you know, Sega is eating Nintendo's lunch. Nintendo's trying to figure out what to do. There was a brief period in this era where Sega was actually in the lead. Like they had the market. Like yeah. And my theory behind this has always been. Nintendo would put out an A plus game every so often, like it would be like an absolute like A plus. But Sega would put out high C's or like B's like constantly, so you'd be constantly getting these streams of good games. They weren't the Nintendo level games, but they were good. And like 
they were worth picking up. It wasn't like you were getting like crap games all the time. Plus it was the cool console. And I just feel like there was always, cause there'd be like points for Nintendo where you'd be like, there's nothing to play. So you'd be kind of like waiting for the next big game. And then Sega was like pumping these things out left and right. Cause Sega was just a freaking monster in the nineties. Well, there's, there's a lot behind that, I think too. So first of all, Sega had an entirely aggressive had a very aggressive marketing campaign. Yes. Far more aggressive than what Nintendo was doing. Nintendo was kind of sticking to their guns with what made them their money prior to. And why wouldn't you? You're the king of the hill. Everything's working out. You don't see any reason why you're going to be slowing down. You're going to stick with what's making you money. NEC couldn't get out of its own way. It's pretty much dead by 91 uh, for all intents and purposes. They're on they're on their last gasp of air. They're trying to do whatever they can with their CD attachment, which isn't getting any traction either because it's way too expensive and people don't understand CDs yet. Yes. So it's pretty much Sega just starting to dominate the market. And Sega capitalized on something that Sony would later and that they understood that people who were playing games in 1985 had aged six years. So they had started advertising towards, you know, no longer 10 year olds, but 16 year olds, 15 year olds, you know, people who are edgy, people who are rebellious youths in Generation X, you know, we're going to be cool. We're going to get you to play sports. We're going to get you to play the hockey games. Sonic has an attitude. Uh, here's Mortal Kombat. Michael Jackson was relevant at the time. <laughs> exactly. Michael Jackson and his music. You love Michael Jackson, right? Mortal Kombat has blood. They don't. Um, so it was advertising towards an older market and Sega capitalized on it, it's just natural. If people had started playing games, like people were playing games since the Atari, people were playing games since 1980. It had been 10 years. Timmy, who was five when he got his Atari in 1980, was now 16 years old. Yeah. You want to maintain that market. Plus, you still have a young group of kids who you are trying to entice over from the NES. They were grabbing it and they were doing a fantastic job. I don't think that's really talked about too often when it comes to why Sega was dominating. Another key thing I always point out that kind of gets overlooked is you look at the Genesis and you look at the Super Nintendo, the American Super Nintendo. Anyways, the Super Nintendo looks like a toy. Genesis looks like it looks hardcore. It looks edgy. It looks cool. Even Yeah, even the redesigned Model 2 still looked, like, mean. That's a good point. I had never thought about it. The Super Nintendo does look like a cheap toy, and the Genesis looks... Which is annoying, because the European and Japanese versions look is a great-looking console. They, they they look elegant, but they still don't compare to just the, the edginess and coolness that that the Sega Genesis or Mega Drive has. Yeah. it's it's They still look cooler. I think the only system that really takes the cake and how cool it looks at this time period is the core graphics and the Turbo Duo. Yes. Those are the two systems that look phenomenal. I think they look cooler in both systems. But again, NEC doesn't know how to market shit. And the Turbo Duo is the graphics in the CDN1, right? Yes. Yes. And it, it looks... It looks so good. It's a gorgeous system. The only other system that could compare is the Neo Geo, but that's also asterisk, like its own thing. Yeah, it cost like $550 in 91. No one's buying that. That was the premium console. That's why they made the CD version, which had the worst, one of the worst disc drives in history. But go ahead. Yeah, Kay, look up like the Duo R and the Duo RX as well. They are extremely gorgeous consoles, and I wish I had one. There was a lot of revisions of the PC Engine. It is like crazy. Yeah, they had some really dumb ones. Yeah, the, the shuttle. The shuttle was an interesting choice. Which I think only had RF out on top of it, which was like, what? The, the American one only has RF. It does. And that's another reason it failed. 
But we're in 91, we're moving into 92, and Nintendo's finally starting to get some some ground underneath it. Like, it releases Super Mario Kart, it's getting, it has, like, Super Contra, it has, you know, Castlevania 4 is out there, I don't think, I think it was around a launch title anyway, it was pretty close. Yeah, uh, Final Fantasy 4, or 2, I guess. <laughs> that, was, that was 91, and uh, RPGs weren't a big deal then, but in Japan they were loving it, they were eating it up. 2 did well enough, though, that it, it was... It was underground, but it was it wasn't a failure, I guess, like uh, some of the other ones at the time were. Yeah. Meanwhile, Sega had Sonic the Hedgehog two, which was massive. This is also the point where you really saw the strength of Sega's internal development because so many games they could not get on the system because Nintendo had them over there. Sega would just rather than give up and not do anything, they'd make their own. So like, yep, Nintendo had a, a final fight. Sega makes Streets of Rage, which is arguably better in some cases, depending on the person. In almost every way. And then in 92, you know, they had Final Fight, which was only one player and didn't even have all the characters. And then 92, you see Streets of Rage 2, which is my favorite game ever made. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you re- you even look back at this time, like you look at 91, 92, and you think, what games are the most memorable from that time? What was being advertised better? They're, they're, they're hands down Sega games. But the one thing I think really started to turn the tide in Nintendo's favor, I think the Super Nintendo would have worked out, would have won out eventually anyway. It was just better hardware. It would have gotten there. And and the way that they had games are just more timeless and the 2D-ness like really worth it on people, I think, over time. I feel like Sega would have been closer at the end and would have been in a much better, much better place going into Gen 5. But the game that swung the momentum was Street Fighter 2. And why is that? Was it better on the Super Nintendo? It wasn't out on Sega. Wait. Street Fighter 2 was out. Yeah, it's on Sega. No, no, no. Go back to 1992. Street Fighter 2. Street Fighter 2 was, I guess, in modern times, you call it a timed exclusive. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought you said it didn't come out on Genesis. Street Fighter 2 regular edition did not come out on Genesis. It came out the next year as Championship Edition. Oh, okay. So they got the time. Oh, that is. All right. Yeah, timed exclusive. Plus, the Super Nintendo had something that the Sega Genesis didn't. Three more buttons. Actually, more than that. It had six manipulative buttons and a start and select button. Which is which immediately led to Sega releasing the six-button controller, which is actually superior for fighting games just because of its layout. But but not everyone had one. It wasn't yes. the default yeah, controller. Exactly. Whereas every, every Super Nintendo owner had a six-button controller. Yes. So when you have the biggest arcade game, which arguably saved the arcades. It's still the biggest arcade game of all time, right? I think it's Pac-Man or... I think it's Pac-Man. Pac-Man or Space Invaders. It's up there, though. But it saved the arcade... Like, Street Fighter Two saved the arcade scene, which was already starting to... Which, at that time, was starting to go on to a downturn. And it just... It brought the entirety of the arcade up with it. So now you had... Uh, once again, you had a home port which wasn't one-to-one, but it was extremely close to what you could do in the arcade, and it was exclusive to the Super Nintendo. So if you really want to look at when the momentum started to shift back over into Nintendo's favor, it's with Street Fighter 2, and it's in 1992. Another interesting like example of Nintendo having like a franchise and then Sega not being able to have said franchise would probably be Final Fantasy obviously was Nintendo. But that was more for that was more through at that point because Nintendo had lost that lawsuit with the entire um exclusivity shit because Sega started getting third parties. Yes. But they also had a lot of loyal companies, which the, the loyal part is really funny when you think in hindsight, but Square was one of the most loyal companies to Nintendo, so they had the RPG Kings were over on Nintendo. And Enix. Enix true. Although they weren't releasing in the US as much because they actually lost their US division i believe 
Sega, by comparison, had to make their own RPGs. So we got Fantasy Star. And then one of my favorite funny things is their direct competitor to Fire Emblem, Shining Force. But we actually got it over here. Yeah, we didn't get Fire Emblem, but we got Sega's Fire Emblem. I didn't know that Shining Force was a response to Fire Emblem. Absolutely. It's actually kind of better than the early Fire Emblems, too, because you could uh, walk around towns like a regular RPG, and it has a lot more interactivity than the old Fire Emblems. We also didn't have those back then, so we don't really have an appreciation for them as much. I mean, they were doing that, but when you talk about RPGs, they were, I mean, it wasn't quite 1997 with Final Fantasy VII yet. not yet. So no one in the United States, or even Europe for the most part, really gave a shit about RPGs. We look back at it, we say we do, but when you want to talk about Jap- uh, RPGs, you have to talk about the Japanese market. And that's why the Super Nintendo was just crushing it over there, because Dragon Quest V and Final... No, Dragon Quest... Yeah, Dragon Quest V and Final Fantasy V came out the same year in Japan. So, <laughs> you're not beating it. So you get up to the point in 1993. By this point, Sega had released the Sega CD. Yes, which was in response to... Especially just Mode 7. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was partially that. And also, apparently there was inklings of the soup, what would eventually be known as the Super Nintendo CD add-on, but that wasn't officially announced yet at the time. It was in the airwaves. And they also were responding to the TurboGrafx CD. Right, which is, that would be more of a Japanese response because, again, wasn't nothing was going on with the TurboGrafx in the United States. You had the, the PC CD add-on in Japan, which was the first time a console ever had a CD add-on, which the two, first two games were some weird Japanese game and Fighting Street, also known as Street Fighter, which came out over there and are both bad games, by the way. Yeah. And there were some really good Turbo CD games. If you ever wanted to... Oh, they're fantastic. East, uh, 1, 2, and 3 are all on there. They're fantastic. There are so many good games for that. But they just weren't translating over here. They weren't get, getting a mar- foothold. And really, the Sega CD didn't. A lot of people say the Sega CD was a colossal failure. It wasn't a... I wouldn't say it was a colossal failure. I thought the 32X was, but not the CD. The the Sega CD is one of the most confusing things ever, too. Because in theory and practice, that should have been like a home run. Cost too much. That that is one part of it. And then the majority of the software on it was full motion video garbage that no one wanted to play. Well, developers still hadn't yet figured out what what would make us what what's the advantage of a CD game, which of course was more space. So the first reaction to a CD game at the time wasn't making the games bigger or adding rotating sprites or taking advantage of the new hardware capabilities because the Sega CD made made the Genesis significantly more powerful. Not maybe significantly is the wrong word, but it did make it more powerful. It brought it at least on level, I guess a more level playing field, I guess yeah. you could say. Still couldn't fix the the color palette. The color palette was still you know lower, but what it could do is it could do rotating sprites. It could do it could do some upgrades. But the the problem was is when developers looked at the extra space, they're like, oh, we can put Redbook audio on this. Like they they weren't thinking big picture. They were thinking audio quality. Like we can put real orchestrated tracks, or we could put we can put animations in here in full motion video, and that's how they thought was the best utilization of. Of CDs, which actually, when you think about it, that's what they thought for up until Final Fantasy VII and beyond Final Fantasy VII. Even early PS1 days was just riddled with bad FMV sequences. And, and it's it's really sad, too, that the genres that got it right on the Sega CD were the ones that weren't popular at the time. Yeah, RPGs. Because RPGs thrived on the Sega CD. And ironically, it was mostly due to working designs bringing them over here. And like one of the biggest, obviously, I said earlier, one of the biggest, like, uh, contributors to the Sega CD was a company called Working Designs, who were probably the one of the OGs of RPG localization in um, 
America at the time. Localization at this point was still kind of a, it wasn't, they hadn't quite figured it out yet with um, a lot of text heavy games and you'd get a lot of literal translations and uh, jokes wouldn't make sense. And they, you'd have a lot of like errors and stuff that you really couldn't get around because of the language barrier at the time. Working Designs was one of the companies that their whole goal was, if it doesn't make sense in America, change it, make it make sense. Work out something that does make sense. And they kind of had a reputation for kind of going a lot of ways, going taking a lot of games and going their own way with their stories. And they're also known notable for their incredibly high quality packaging and almost exce- almost to like an excessive degree. Like they also were known for jacking up the difficulty of their games to almost an absurd degree. <laughs> I haven't really played much of the shoot 'em ups. I know that's like one of the biggest, most infamous points. Also in Vi. Yeah. Oh my god, nice. I know that's 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 going to be obscure for a lot of you listeners out there, but Vi is a Sega CD RPG, obviously that um, Working Designs worked on, and the what the, the way they made it more difficult is they made uh, items cost more money, uh, enemies have more hit points, more experiences, more experience to gain levels. So there's one boss that you'll you you will little you will literally spend like fifteen to twenty minutes on, and all you'll be doing is just attack, 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 heal, attack, 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 heal. For 15, 20 minutes. And that's not because that was the original design of the uh, of the game designers. It was because Working Designs added it in there as a little difficulty boost. And they do this shit with all their games. I'm not saying Vi would have been a fantastic RPG otherwise. I like Vi. I have a really soft spot in my heart for it. But they just they took games that were relatively easy and digestible to play and they sometimes they damn near ruined them especially with exile 2 for for the turbo cd they just completely ruined that game because they wanted to make it harder they weren't perfect i'll say that like they definitely had flaws they're most well known obviously for the lunar games and bringing those to a which they did a fantastic job with those games i don't care what anyone says those games are fantastic lunar 2 for me is a top five rpg in my opinion one of the best RPGs from that generation. I mean, you said top five. Obviously, it is. <laughs> I mean, y- you won't agree with my top five just because of what's number four, but... <laughs> Please not be Fantasy Star 2. So I have an incredibly soft spot for... So I have an incredible <laughs> soft spot for this. <laughs> Look at his... He's holding up Final Fantasy Eight. Yeah. In my defense, <laughs> this was my first RPG It's ever better played. than saying seven is your first, which is super okay. cliche. So I told the I Kate, I told you this story. The only reason I got eight was because I was a I was a four year old and I mixed up the Roman numeral. I, I think I might have on our first podcast. I basically I I when I wrote on the Christmas list what I wanted, I wanted seven, but I wrote an extra I, so I got eight. <laughs> I got eight. Nice. Even though I like eight more than Chris, as I've mentioned to both of you recently, and when I replayed it, I have to admit it's not as good as I remember. The game's the game's got some problems. <laughs> My love for eight is entirely nostalgia driven. Even I will admit the game is a mess, but... And we all have those games. We definitely have those games. I mean, look, Chris thinks the Wii U is the greatest console, (laughs) so, I mean, that should tell you everything you need to know about his objective. Best console ever. I love... If you you ask me my, like, the consoles I just love to play, I know we're kind of getting off topic here, but yes, the Wii U, the Sega Saturn, the Turbo Graphics, I pick the winners, man. I pick the winners. All right, where were we? Sega CD RPGs? Yes, talking about working designs. And then another key, I guess probably the most famous game on the Sega CD to this day is probably Sonic CD, which isn't actually as good as people say, in my opinion. There was a time where people said it was the best Sonic game ever released. For a long time, people said that. Yeah, and I don't, I don't get that. Well, that's because no one played it. 
That's true, because it's the, it was for the longest time the most obscure, which is funny because the point where people did start playing it was the Xbox Live PSN remaster, which is 10 times superior and actually makes it a fun game to play. And even then they were like, oh, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> like, Sonic 3 is much better. I like Sonic 2 and then I like 3D Blast. A lot of people don't, but I like 3D Blast a lot. It's a good game. It has a phenomenal soundtrack on the Genesis. I think I think people shit on 3D Blast way too much. I mean, it's not a perfect game, but it's not like the worst game ever made. Like some people, it just it wasn't the Sonic game people wanted. They wanted they wanted Mario 64 as Sonic, and it wasn't. And they're like, "What the fuck is this?" I did an entire podcast on the Sonic franchise, and my god, that's that um that fan base is is its own worst enemy. But I mean, you're right with the Sega CD. You know, the biggest game that came out was Sonic CD, and I don't think it was enough of a world shifter, right? I mean, the the console itself was too expensive. You still had Sonic 2. You didn't need to play Sonic CD, and parents weren't going to get this add-on that a lot of people didn't quite understand. Remember, CDs were still a new technology to many people. People were still using cassette tapes in their cars at this time. Because if they didn't want to touch their CD and mess up their fancy new CD players, like even CD players were like $500, $300 at this time. And or just to get something to play your music CD, not just your Sega CD, which also played music CDs, which was great. But it didn't work the same way like the DVD player did with the um, with the, the PlayStation 2. Didn't Sega CD have the whole Night Trap fiasco? It did. We, we can get into that. Yeah, we could. That's actually a pretty fun story. So it was partially Night Trap, but it was also Mortal Kombat was the big key influence on the whole creation of what is now known as the ESRB. And Night Trap is probably the most infamous, even though if you actually play it, it's like the most harmless game ever made, really. Five Nights at Freddy's. Yeah. That's all it is. It's it's just a bunch of guys in rubber suits running around. It's really nothing that insane. I think that was a big turning point. I think I think you really bring up a good point here, Kate, and that is a very important topic to touch on while we're in the fourth generation and can't go without stating is this is where video games started to grow up. This is where people finally started to understand that video games were a form of expression and a form of art. And Mortal Kombat was probably the biggest game to do that. Like the the whole entire blood code on the Sega Genesis and the controversy it stirred with the United States government. And I think it was Joe Lieberman, like really like leading the charge. He was in there. Uh, Nintendo's the president, uh, the chairman of Nintendo, Howard Lincoln. He was a big guy at those meetings because he was ruthless against Sega. Of course he was. He wanted to slam dunk on them. They were his. They were. It was the console wars. It was the competition. It, it, don't buy a Genesis. Buy our stuff. Come back. Come back home to Nintendo, the family wholesome place. But I mean, it was also lethal enforcers, which you know I don't think ever gets stopped. I mean, that's another one. But um, this really stemmed out of the entire attitude of the '80s when you had Tipper Gore going after you know Twisted Sister and shit, and saying that we need to put. Yeah, when you wanted to put like parental advisory on all the albums, which we have to this day, if anyone's seen a CD album in the past fucking 15 years. But, you know, this is um, this this was a big part of this movement where there was this big attempt to censor every form of media because they just couldn't comprehend the changes to media delivery that were just happening so rapidly over a short period of time. And so because the video game industry was still viewed as a kid's industry that when you sold things to kids. They could not be violent or they couldn't be mature. You couldn't have, you know, content that handled things in adult fashion. 
you know, the reaction was, you know, measured in the same way that you would towards any parent towards a child. It wasn't, com- it was, no one comprehended that anyone over the age of 18 was playing video games. And this is around the, the fourth generation of video games changed that dynamic. And it allowed people to have the mindset that, yes, two adults play video games. And maybe you do need to be a responsible parent and monitor what your kids are doing under the latchkey generation. It was it was a huge tectonic shift in the way that video games would be developed moving forward and really how media uh, was viewed moving forward as well. Yes. And that was that led to quite possibly one of the most, I guess you could say, infamous entities in gaming history with the ESRB, the ratings board. You know, Chris is over here talking about like highbrow stuff and culture and video games and art. And all I'm thinking is I grew up in a hyper religious household in the ESRB fucked all my shit up because now my parents were paying attention and all of a sudden I went from I could get whatever game I want and they didn't really pay attention because they just assumed it was all kid whatever and then you get all this bad news coverage about Mortal Kombat and Night Trap and I could not play I'm pretty sure Streets of Rage 3 was the first Streets of Rage that was rated maybe it was 2 but I'm almost 99% sure it was 3 it was 3 it it used no it was 3 it was 3 it didn't use the ESRB though it used Sega's own rating board that they had Sega had like a weird rating system that they introduced, which was basically the same thing, but slightly different. But uh, I couldn't buy Streets of Rage. I'm pretty sure it had ESRB because it was. What Streets of Rage three? Streets of Rage three may have had it because Lunar two had the ESRB. Lunar two did. Lunar one did not. Lunar two, yeah. Lunar one did not. Lunar one had the uh, Sega's version of it. The Sega one. Mm-hmm. I just remember I couldn't get it. Whatever, whatever the rating was, whether it was Sega's internal board or the ESRB. And I told the story before, but I told my parents, why can't I get this? I already have Streets of Rage 1 and 2. Like, this is the same shit. It's just a sequel. And so Streets of Rage 3 actually does have the Sega version of the uh... MA-13. Yep. MA-3. Yeah, I remember because I was not 13 and I couldn't get Streets of Rage 3. And instead of convincing them that I should be able to play it because I had 1 and 2, they just retroactively took 1 and 2 away. And I got fucked and it was sucked. And I just, yeah, I was like, this whole rating thing is bullshit. As an adult now, I get it. I, I think it is good that it made parents aware to pay attention to what their kids are doing. But as a kid, that sucked really bad. No, I, I think it was actually for the better. I think that the rating system is great. And especially back then, because adults still didn't understand video games, they didn't understand what was going on in the market, and they didn't know what their kids were playing. So, you know, them being able to make that choice and have a rating system that's not dictated, you know, I'm sorry to get a little political here, but not dictated by the United States government is dictated kind of by the entertainment industry in and of itself, much like movies are. I think that that was actually a really good thing for video games. I think it really helps people, parents that don't understand games, get the games for their children that they think is appropriate for them. So, yeah, I mean, that's I think I think nothing but positive things came out in the long run from this year. See, I have more like kind of like I don't have an issue with the ESRB. I have more of an issue with people's handling of the ESRB. Sure. Which is like as a kid, I had strict parents with it. So I wasn't I wasn't allowed to say play like Grand Theft Auto as a kid, which in hindsight, I agree with because nothing drives me insane. Like to get a little off topic here, nothing will ever drive me more insane than the day Grand Theft Auto 5 came out. I went to pick it up. I was the only adult in the store. I think I agree with you, Chris. Like, as as frustrating as it was to have Streets of Rage 1 and 2 taken away because of the ESRB, in the long run, yeah, at that age, I shouldn't be playing Grand Theft Auto unattended. Uh, or I really shouldn't be playing it at all. 
But then again, before Grand Theft Auto, and I can't think think of any. I'm sure you guys can think of. Were there any more explicit adult games on the Genesis Super Nintendo in this era besides Mortal Kombat and Blood? I can't think of anything. It's hard to say because tastes tastes have kind of like I guess what you could say like the actual impression has of changed. Like a yeah. Mature game has changed <laughs> a lot since. Well, now it's just then. yeah, it's wild now. Because Mortal Kombat's laugh Mortal Kombat's laughable nowadays, and um, well, because the the market aged so. Like and be, the people finally understood how to use the medium to its maximum extent, where you really couldn't. I mean, you still had a lot of limitations with the Super Nintendo, Sega CD, Genesis, everything back then. You 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 couldn't do the kind of things to have like a real mature storytelling. If you want to talk about mature storytelling, go play Final Fantasy VI and really look into the themes that it's trying to explore. That's a very mature game. Oh, even uh, uh, Fantasy Star Four. I mean. Yeah, Fantasy Star, Fantasy Star Four did everything that Final Fantasy Seven did first. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Fantasy Star Two before that, and Final Fantasy Five. We could we could make a list of things that happened before Final Fantasy Seven that Final Fantasy Seven idiots think happened first with that game. So yeah, <laughs> um, okay. Anyway, that. moving forward, shots fired. Shots fired. Uh, we'll, we'll address that because we're running out of time in the next episode. But I will remember that comment and I will be ready to to address it. I told you on your show, Cade. I told you to your face. We don't. You don't have to keep addressing it. You know how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> but we got to talk about the 32x. I think is kind of the last thing. Well, we didn't. We didn't get into Star Fox because this was all supposed to lead into Star Fox. Because <laughs> I actually want to get into that because there's one of the biggest misconceptions a lot of like fans of gaming bring up is they'll always when they talk. There's no doubt the Super Nintendo was the winner and superior console by the end. Yeah. But a lot of like gamers have retroactively kind of discredited the Genesis for a lot of things that it, it it had a lot of points that people kind of will discredit it for when they talk about the Super Nintendo. Particularly two of the biggest examples are Donkey Kong Country and um the Super FX chip. They always claim these yeah. were Nintendo's big things that they hope that they were able to do that Sega couldn't, which I always immediately respond. Sega literally did both of those. <laughs> virtual racing. Virtual and virtual the Sega SPV SP SVP chip, I believe, is superior to the FX chip. Well, it could do more because it did more on inferior hardware to bring it up to similar levels. But it was also three times as expensive. Yes. So yeah, I mean what? Star Fox cost what $70, which is still a lot. It came you know, it comes out in 93. That's still a ton of money. But you were getting a full game with Star Fox. So when you talk about virtual racing and the SVP chip, whatever it's called. Sega Visual Processor, so yeah, SVP. Yeah, S- SVP chip. That came out in 94, so it came out after Star Fox, first of all. Second of all, it cost, the game cost $100. So it cost more than Star Fox, and it wasn't nearly as much of a game as Star Fox. I mean, I'm a big racing game fan, so I love it personally, and it's honestly a technical marvel, but yeah, when you look... Star Fox is, is not a great comparison. A good comparison, I'd say, would be like a Stunt Race FX. Well, there's more game in Stunt Race FX. True. But if you look at them side by side, I'd rather play Virtual Racing over Stunt Race FX. That's tough for me. I don't think Virtual Racing controls very well. It's too slow for me. That's my problem with it. I, I can understand that, yeah. And I just find the, the, the SVP chip to be a fascinating what could have been because they had other games planned for it. They actually, I think their their idea was going to be it was going to be a chip, a separate cartridge that you would plug. You'd buy the cartridge right full out, and then you'd have game, 
games that you'd plug into said cartridge. You'd pay the money for the chip, and then you the games would be regular priced after kind of thing. Yeah, it was smarter that they didn't do that because NEC tried to do that in Japan with a console that was you know extraordinarily popular as well, at least in Japan, and it flopped with the super graphics. So the super graphics, as long as we're still talking about the fourth generation, we're bouncing back again. Uh, super graphics was kind of like a PC Engine Pro. Like, you know how they have the PS, PS4 Pro and the Xbox One, uh, Xbox One X and shit? Yeah. So NEC did that with the PC Engine. And they, they came out with a system called the Super Graphics, and it looks like a car engine. It's hilarious. It's, <laughs> it's one of the most questionable designs ever. Holy cow, this looks insane. So what it is, is it's just a PC engine with, with, with that's more powerful. But it's still 8-bit. It's still 8-bit. Still 8-bit. So it came out with games that only run on it, which I think there's only a total of eight games. Yes. One of them is Ghouls and Ghosts, which is a really good, really good port. That's actually probably the best game on it. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also two games that all work on the PC engine. They just have enhanced features on the, on the P, uh, Super Graphics. But no one bought the Super Graphics, no one bought the games, and it flopped. So it's a good thing Sega didn't do that with the SVP chip, because we have, we have something in the past that shows when you do that, that is not very successful. And probably nothing would happen. But they basically did that with the 32X later. Well, I believe that SVP chip thing ended up morphing into the 32X in a, in a weird roundabout way. And that was really kind of the death knell, too. I mean, everyone does talk about... Yeah, and Donkey Kong Country, by the way, was was a just revelation. I, I think... It is what it is. It's a great game. It was a great game. I always have to point out, though, I'm like, the Genesis could do the same thing. It wasn't... They just didn't have the same level of quality, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, technically, you could use the same processes, creative processes, to take supercomputers and render those down to, to sprites and then get those running on a... a which Vectorman is an example of that, but the the Genesis versions weren't just as good of games. I mean, Donkey Kong Country is a really good game mm-hmm. in general. Take just take away the graphics, still a really good game. And I, Vectorman is a good game. I played both of them and I beat both of them, but they weren't as memorable as Donkey Kong Country's. No, I just I always have to point out it because a lot of people will discredit the Genesis where it, it does deserve some credit. I think the problem with Vector Man, and this is right before they released the 32X, and this is by the time Sega's like starting to lose. It's very evident that they're starting to lose. Um, they're they're losing market. It's aging hardware. Nintendo, Nintendo, like you said earlier, Nintendo would release an A title once every couple of months, and Sega would just knock it out with the B titles. But then you get to the point in '94, like '90, late '93, '94. Now all of a sudden, if I buy a Super Nintendo. Those A titles have added up. And now I'm still getting A titles. Three Donkey Kong Country games in like almost two years. You have you have all these you have all these incredible games that are just coming out at the end of the life cycle. And Sega, I mean, yeah, Vector Man's a good game, but it's a B title. They're still giving you B games. You have your Sonic 3, Sonic 3 and Knuckles, but that other than that, they're just regular like 80% games that are coming out, and Nintendo now has like some of the greatest games of all time, a library of like 20, 30 games that people can go to and be like, I love this game with all my heart. And Sega Genesis has Sonic. And people are catching on to this. People who are just getting these consoles at reduced prices are like, if I'm going to get my value, it's on the Super Nintendo. So now Sega's starting to get hammered. And Sega of Japan is, is kind of in a panic on how to address this because they have new hardware coming out. 
but it's not it's not quite going to be ready and they know that the Sega Genesis is still popular in the United States so they don't want to lose that market. So this comes into the 32X and Bill I'll let you take it. And this is also the this is also the height of Sega of Japan clashing with Sega of America and numbers of miscommunication and faulty ideas and basically Japan was doing whatever they could to make America fail out of spite in a lot of ways. They wanted control. Yes. So the 32X was essentially the Saturn was not going to be ready at any time. And they also, the Saturn was still kind of Sega hadn't really figured out what they wanted to do with the Saturn yet. Cause obviously the competitors future systems were also not really announced yet. So while Sega Japan's working on that, they kind of push over to America and they're kind of their whole thing is like, we need to do something to update the Genesis. It's still selling over there. See if you're, if you guys, your, your technical side can actually like come up with something. So then, Initially, the 32X was going to be a console called the Neptune, I believe, which was basically a it was a it was a built in 32X Genesis dedicated system. I think that was the Neptune. Yeah. yeah. And but that was canceled in favor of the, the mushroom style design that they went with. There's there's one prototype out there somewhere. It actually looks pretty cool. Yeah, it's actually really it's a sick looking system, like if it actually came out. Mm-hmm. But um essentially the mass they had to create this add-on which was based off of two thirty-two bit Hayachi chips, I believe, Hitachi chips. And it was basically it would piggyback off of the Genesis, but you also had to have like a separate cord that went from the Genesis to the thirty-two X, plus it had its own power supply. It it was a mess. Oh yeah. I had one. I was yeah. one of the one ten, mm-hmm. oh, like, like you were saying, ten people. I was one of the ten people that owned a thirty-two X. It doesn't help that everybody. Is, so they're pushing all these developers to make games for this thing, and just as it's about to come out, Sega basically announces, "Oh, the Saturn's going to be out like a, a couple months later." Yes. So it basically killed any point of buying this thing, and it didn't help too that a bunch of American gamers had already bought the thing and were basically being told, "Oh, this is already obsolete." Yeah, it was it was it was more successful than the Virtual Boy, thankfully. Yeah. Um not by much though. Not by much. I just noticed we haven't talked about portable gaming at all. Maybe we should save that for the beginning of next episode. I feel like portable gaming could be its own It could. It could, yeah. It's its own class. I just we, we okay, so we're gonna just say this for posterity. We do recognize that portable gaming is a thing at this time. We just have we were we are not talking about it. The, yeah, the Game Boy itself could be its own three-hour oh, yeah. podcast in the history of the Game Boy. And, and between the Game Boy and the Game Gear and, and the Lynx and the uh, Microvision and Game & Watch and yeah, Nomad and all those things that were going on. But yeah, I mean, you're right. By, by the time 32X came out, I mean, it didn't necessarily kill the Genesis, but I think it killed trust in Sega. And this is right around the time, and that was around the time everyone was gearing up for the next generation. Uh, Nintendo was starting to heavily advertise their Ultra 64 in the Killer Ar- uh, Killer Instinct arcade cabinet and Cruising USA. So at the time, before the 32X was pushed into production, Tom Kalinske was actually pushing around trying to get like a next-generation console thrown together. And he had met with the company known as Silicon Graphics to design a console that would be powerful for the next generation. And they basically came up with this architecture and he sent it to Sega of Japan, who rejected it immediately, because they did not create it. And so basically, 
Silicon Graphics is stuck with this really powerful system that they came up with, and they have nothing, no idea what to do with it. So Tom Kalinske, because he was leaving Sega by this point, he, he the writing was already on the wall. He basically tells them, "Go to, go to one of our competitors, see if they want this." And that system pretty much became the N sixty four. But I mean, Keto, because we're we're trying to wrap this up on the fourth generation and get into the fifth generation of the next episode, but. Just to, that's, that's kind of the knife. That was really the beginning. That was really the official downfall of Sega right there is the complete failure of the 32X, the mixed messaging of what was the future of gaming. Because a lot of people point to the Sega CD and they say that was it, and it's not. It, it totally wasn't. Because um, the Sega CD didn't really hurt Sega all that much at all. And it wasn't really as much of a failure as everyone says it was. No, it's, it sold a good couple million anyways. It did. It did. Um, but the 32X, it, it ruined people's faith in the Sega brand. Um, when people started looking to the future of the next generation of consoles they wanted to buy, all of a sudden they were, they thought they had it with the 32X and they found out they didn't, like Bill said, and it confused purchasers and anyone who was hesitant on buying one to begin with, their reputation was shot. And Nintendo had already at the end of that generation has such strong titles they they were on a roll. The Genesis was on its last breath, and that's when like you had games like Sonic 3D Blast being announced to compete with and Vector Man to compete with Donkey Kong Country and Super Mario RPG. And that's when you could say probably RPGs before Final Fantasy VII got people's head turning with Super Mario RPG because it was such a big title. Well, that was designed specifically for a more casual audience, and it was basically a response to Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, which was one of the most misguided attempts at getting the uh, casual people into RPGs. But we get to the end of the fourth generation. Nintendo's riding high. They look unstoppable again. Sega's on shaky grounds. No one really knows what's going on with them. And no one looks like there might be a new competitor in, in the wings going into the fifth generation, which technically has already started by 95, uh, has been going for a couple of years now. But um, that's I think that's a pretty good stopping point. What do you think, Cade? All I was going to say is, to reiterate your point about, I also think that the 32X was the knife, not the Sega CD, because I remember, I wasn't aware of all this business stuff. I wasn't even aware of the Saturn. I I didn't even get exposed to the marketing. I thought the Sega CD was dope. My friends had it. I ended up getting it. I got the 32X. And again, I wasn't confused by the, I I wasn't let down by the fact that the Saturn was coming out or Mm -hmm. did come out soon. I was let down that, like, it felt like a ripoff. One, my I remember my mom specifically getting it for me saying she was sold that it would make existing Genesis games look and perform better. Which isn't is isn't a lie. It's kind of a half truth. Games do look better coming out of a thirty a Genesis game does technically look better coming out when a thirty two X is attached. The 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 visual quality is slightly better. The thing is, is that you really have to have an eye for video fidelity. I think you also have to have maybe like a higher quality, like maybe a better TV. RGB out. You have to have like RGB out on top of it or SCART. It also doesn't help that a lot of 32X games did not do a whole lot to really make themselves stand out compared to Genesis games. Yeah. Only Only Virtual Fighter. Virtual Racing Deluxe was superior to Virtual Racing. But it wasn't that good of a game to begin with, so... I'm a shameless racing fan, so I'm a little biased. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I just learned this about him our last episode. He loves racing. Um, but I remember being let down. Like, I remember I was old enough to think, like, 
my mom got because my mom got screwed. Like I'm playing all my old Genesis games, and they're the same. Nothing's different, as far as I could tell, as a kid. And the games weren't that good, other than the Star Wars Tie. I think it was like X Wing or Tie Fighter. Knuckles Chaotix, which is it's not it's not a Sonic game, which is something that would end up haunting Sega for the next five years. It's also it's also might be a little controversial statement. This isn't actually that great of a game. It's not. It's it's not controversial to say that. It's very it's 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 fine enough, but it is super repetitive. Like I definitely wasn't aware of it at the time. I've uh I've played it or I've watched videos on it since. But I think I had one other friend that had a thirty two X and we were I don't remember our, our exact age, but we both felt like it was a waste and not that cool. And we weren't even aware of Sega Saturn and all this other stuff you're talking about. We were just kids who got one because our parents were dope. Oh, also <laughs> another one final topic too was Nintendo showed up the 32X with one of their own games in Yoshi's Island, which was one of the most fascinating games probably to ever be created because it was literally made because Nintendo wanted Miyamoto to make a Mario game like Donkey Kong Country. And Miyamoto was on record of he did not like the he was not a huge fan of Donkey Kong Country. But I I think what I mean going back to Donkey Kong Country, like you look at what you're getting on the 32X compared to Donkey Kong Country, Yoshi's Island, and even Star Fox. And a lot of people are like, this isn't that big of a leap. This doesn't justify the investment. No. No. It didn't even feel like a leap. That's what I was trying to get at. It didn't feel like a leap as a kid at all. And I think you you look at the best games on the system, which were Virtua Fighter, um, uh, Space Harrier, Afterburner, and Calibri, for example. I mean, those are some good games. And I think there's some other ones that are okay. Uh, Metalhead's a fun little mindless uh, shooter, but you look at you look at those games and, and what are the the first three games I all have in common? They're arcade games, and look, people still liked arcade games. There's no denying it. But the entire the entire mentality that you could just put an arcade game on a system and that be your system seller was an was an archaic thought by ninety four ninety five. It just didn't pass muster anymore. That was that was a holdover idea and thought process from the mid eighties. That Sega still thought, hey, we're really big in the arcades. People like Virtual Fighter, they'll buy the 32X for it until they realized all it was was the arcade mode. And then they're like, no, games had evolved so much further beyond that by that point that that there was no reason to do it. It was a mentality that Sega would take with them basically to the end. Yes, absolutely. They would. And that's two generations from now. But although I will admit once we get there, it's confusing because that they're they're. Their grand finale is one of the most fascinating consoles ever made. Yes, and that that is a, a preview for the next episode because you're you're hinting at the Dreamcast, which is some people consider it the greatest console of all time. There's this cult little world of Dreamcast lovers out there, and they they have some valid points. Some valid points. There's failed consoles, and then there's failed consoles like the Dreamcast, which nobody can say anything bad about. They fail spectacularly. Yep. And that is it. Thank you so much, Chris and Will. This is exactly, honestly, it, I was pretty hyped for this, and you both lived up to the hype. This it went exactly the way I thought it was. I had a suspicion if I got you two rolling, it would just go, and you guys would start dropping the knowledge. And that's exactly what happened. And we're going to do this again, and we're going to cover, I guess we could probably make it. We also didn't do handhelds. We also didn't do PC, anything regarded to PC. But we can make this like a 10 part series. We'll stick with consoles for now and we'll finish the second episode and then we'll see where we're at. <laughs> I mean, hell, Gen- 
Hell, Gen, Gen 5 and 6 alone might take up an entire episode. Everybody, stay tuned for part two with Chris from Retro Hangover and Will or Bill Barber from the Gaming and Collecting Podcast. Until next time, bye-bye.